All right, this one's going to be a doozy, ladies and gentlemen, because I'm doing something that maybe I should be doing with a guest, but I don't got a guest for the next couple weeks, and it, it's actually an, it's an episode I wanted to do uh, for a long time. And obviously, uh, if you go back like six months ago, I did an episode with uh, Carrie Vishwanathan where we picked a director and we just kind of analyzed his filmography, and we did three hours of talking about Michael Bay movies. Three whole goddamn hours. So imagine what it's going to be like with just me here talking about the filmography of maybe one of my favorite filmmakers of all time. Uh, I reference him a lot on the show. I reference him a lot when I'm just talking with fellow film buffs or filmmakers. And I think every genre filmmaker that's come on the show, every horror filmmaker, uh, horror thriller filmmaker, whatever, uh, has referenced none other than John Carpenter. Now, um, I've I've been watching Carpenter. I I have seen every John Carpenter film to date, even the ones that are a little hard to find. Uh, the nineteen eighties um, are filled with Carpenter movies. I, I feel like he did a movie a year. Nineties, he kind of slowed down a little bit. But we're gonna. I shouldn't even be talking about nineteen nineties John Carpenter because this is a part one of a two-part episode uh part two will air next week um because he has got a lot of movies (laughs) he's made um i I don't have the exact number what he's made in front of me but um it's got to be within the 20 to 25 range i mean i feel like he did you know he had a couple at the end of the 70s was where he blew up obviously halloween hit theaters in 1978 which was something that really put him on the map and then throughout the 1980s this he just kept cranking them out um, whether they were box office bombs or not, John Carpenter has become ideally one of the most like well-known uh, filmmakers of the last fifty years. And oddly enough, like people that like aren't even big genre film fans like know about him and respect him. So it's like some people call him a cult filmmaker because uh, his films have kind of achieved this cult film status, but yet they're like so well known too by a wider audience but i feel like there's only that niche group of people that really kind of get carpenter's aesthetic um to go back to when i first discovered him i like most people discovered him through halloween you know that that's like i just said that's his landmark uh that's his big breakthrough film that broke him into the industry and he got to become john carpenter and, you know, he got to have John Carpenter's whatever the title of the movie is. You know, he got to have his name above the title after that. And I think every filmmaker, like, secretly wants something like that. And he got to do it. And, you know, after Halloween, that's when I kind of started seeing Escape from New York. And um, The Thing and The Fog and things like uh, Big Trouble in Little China, which was like his first kind of like big, big uh big budget movie i think that's one of the biggest budget films he's done and oddly enough supposedly that movie lost money as well when it came out but yet people to this day love big trouble in little china we'll touch on that in a little bit so we're kind of going to go through the first part of mr john carpenter's career here today and next week will kind of be the tail the second act to third act and i'm only touching on his films he's directed uh which primarily is everything he's ever made but there was a film i I need to acknowledge it 
uh, there was a film in the 1980s that came out that I guess he had wrote the screenplay for. Well, there was actually a couple. First one was a film called Eyes of Laura Mars. It was a 1978 release uh, with Faye Dunaway and Tommy Lee Jones. It is, I believe, written by John Carpenter. I think he did the screenplay and the story. Uh, so this is kind of coming out around the same time Halloween is dropping or... Um, yeah, it actually dropped, I think, a couple months before Halloween ever hit theaters. Uh, plot for this, it seems very Carpenter-esque, is... Um, uh, Faye Dunaway plays Laura Mars, who's a New York City fashion photographer. Uh, she's got a very successful, you know, career. Um, she does uh, take photos of like controversial images and whatnot. But what happens is she ends up gaining the ability to see visions from a serial killer's perspective, and it happens to be her friends and associates that the killer is stalking. And she's aided by a police investigator, a detective played by Tommy Lee Jones, and they begin to try to track down the psychopath that is in hot pursuit of all of Laura's friends and whatnot. Um, Hadn't seen the movie in a few years. Uh, Actually, last time I saw it was a few years ago. I believe it's streaming on Amazon Prime right now. There is a slight kind of Carpenter vibe to it, and that's kind of the cool thing about John Carpenter. Uh, you know, he's not. He, this isn't his film. This isn't his vision. Well, from a writer's perspective, it is. But things happen from page to camera to post-production suite. You know, uh, but you do kind of see things that are Carpenter-esque kind of seeping up to the surface of the film, uh, which I think is just again a true testament of a great artist. Another film that he wrote and he did not direct also happens to star Tommy Lee Jones in it, and none other than uh, Linda Hamilton. This is 1986's Black Moon Rising. And so this is post-Terminator for Linda Hamilton, so her career is kind of starting to take off. Robert Vaughn is also in it. Um, Again, Carpenter wrote it. Uh, didn't direct it, uh, so I guess this is just one of those things where I, I don't know. I don't really know the full backstory. I didn't do too much of a dive in it. And I, I had seen it a few years ago. It's currently streaming for free over on Tubi right now. If you want to check it out, it's very eighties. Um, you know, Tommy Lee Jones looks like kind of a ripoff of David Hasselhoff and Knight Rider. He's got like a leather jacket, and there's a cool car in it. The plot is Tommy Lee Jones is a FBI freelancer who stashes a stolen Las Vegas crime tape in a high-tech car, and that high-tech car ends up being stolen by Linda, Han- Linda Hamilton. So the two of them kind of team up and take on some bad guys. Uh, I wouldn't say... Um, Carpenter's kind of aesthetic really comes to the surface in this one more than it does in Eyes of Laura Mars. Uh, Oddly oddly enough, because this is in the middle of the 80s when he's really firing on all cylinders as a director. But you do kind of, um, I don't know, there's kind of cool things that like remind you of stuff like, you know, Escape from New York or something. Like, I feel like Tommy Lee Jones's character does have these elements of the anti-hero that you see Carpenter give to like a Kurt Russell in Escape from New York or even something like The Thing. Um, but I, again, I just needed to, before I get started, I really should get started because I got a lot to talk about. This is probably going to be my longest episode by myself. Um, but I needed to preference those two films that he didn't direct, but he has a writer credit on. Uh, I believe, like I said, Isalora Mars might be on Amazon Prime right now. If you are a Prime member, uh, I check it out. It's a cool little thriller. Um, 
and um, Black Moon Rising streaming free on Tubi. I also should maybe do a little bit of a bibliography for this episode because I am going to preference some information that I got from a great encyclopedia book that I got out off of uh, uh, Amazon Prime uh, like a year and a half ago. And I, you know, I'd pick it up and glance at it. But when I decided to really kind of do this episode, I, I did as much of a read as I could for this. Uh, this is Assault on the System, the Nonconformist Cinema of John Carpenter by Troy Howarth. And Troy's done other books like this. Uh, he's a Rondo Award nominated. He specializes in European cult cinema. His books include the films of Klaus Kinski, The Haunted World of Mario Bava. Uh, a lot of books are just about like directors and whatnot. I I, I recommend getting this book. I um, if you are a fan of just studying directors and their craft and whatnot, as I am. And so I'm going to kind of preference, so I'll, I'll put a little in the show notes. I guess that's like my bibliography of like where to find the book. Um, I found it on Amazon. If there's another place, I will try and track that down. I mean, I'm sure he's got a website. Maybe you can look that up. I will definitely make that like my bibliography because I'm going to be referencing his book a lot. Never met Troy, but a uh, great book in case he's listening. <laughs> so... With all that being said, let us start with a dive into the filmography of none other than John Carpenter. And the only place to start is not Halloween. I know some of you fans think I'm starting there. I'm starting actually a couple years before that in the 1970s with a little sci-fi comedy called Dark Star. It is the future. Mankind has conquered the stars. He moves out to the endless, interstellar reaches of the universe. An advanced exploration corps, a new breed of pioneer, must seek out unstable planets and destroy them. The drive sequence begun. Hit it, pin back. of the 21st century planet smashers dark star now dark star's origins begin back in around 1970 john carpenter's at usc um the title of dark star originally wasn't even supposed to be dark star it was actually supposed to be the electric dutchman uh but they changed it to planet fall before they landed on dark star so they shot this on 16 millimeter i think for a budget of about six grand and john carpenter had a partner on the project and a very well-known name in the horror genre as well none other than dan o'bannon now dan o'bannon would go on to craft none other than the storyline of the first alien um he's one of the writers and creators behind it uh and that obviously took off with more than just one single movie with alien it became a franchise um he's also known for directing none other than the cult genre film classic return of the living dead that's one of my personal favorites um but dan o'bannon and john carpenter worked on this little movie back in the 1970s that ended up becoming called dark star uh they were trying to make a stanley kubrick-esque uh, film basically it was trying to be a little bit of dr strange love uh tied in with 2001 a space odyssey with having these sci-fi elements in it um 
with also some comedy and you know they, they grew up in throughout the 1960s so there's kind of that trippy uh, stoner humor that you kind of feel throughout the film they so you know i'm just going to touch on this real quick because it mentions it in the book but in a lot of people kind of in the realm of you know stories throughout the genre know that you know dan o'bannon and john carpenter worked on this they were very much on the same uh, wavelength throughout uh, the film but uh, their friendship really took a toll and did not survive making the film um, that's that's a bummer but at least the two of them got to go have great careers after it so the plot of dark star or the synopsis whatever you want to call it goes a little like goes a little something like this and this is off of carpenter's uh, website uh, it's the middle of the 22nd century mankind has reached a point in its technological advances to enable colonization of the far reaches of the universe Armed with exponential thermostellar bombs, the scout ship Dark Star travels out into the very rim of the unknown universe, far in advance of colony ships prowling the unstable planets. Meanwhile, the crew of Doolittle, Pinback, and Boiler and Talby perform their jobs in a state of abject boredom. So basically it's about a ship going around blowing up planets that could be of harm to people trying to colonize the universe. Uh, the plot follows the misadventures of the four-man crew of the Dark Star. The ship has been in space for 20 years on a mission to destroy unstable planets which might threaten future colonizations. Comedic disaster is the order of the day. As their task has driven the crew up the wall, their commander Powell has died and exists only via cryogenetic supports. That's a cool little part at the end of the movie. Sergeant Pinback has adopted a ship's mascot in the form of a mischievous alien, which is a pretty much a beach ball with claws is what they like to reference because i think they actually just grabbed a giant beach ball painted it red and made it almost look like a rotten tomato and put little claw feet on it and there's a, just a funny scene in the middle of the movie with uh, dan o'bannon fighting this really cheaply made alien um do little dreams of surfing back in malibu and the ship's navigator talby has become reclusive in the ship's uh, dome which is at like the top of the ship. Um, the computer has become dysfunctional due to damage suffered in an asteroid storm, and subsequently, bomb number 20 is threatening to detonate while it's still at the ship's bay. I'm going to touch on that in a little bit, because that becomes very tense in the final act of the movie, and I feel like that's perfect John Carpenter, and we're seeing that in the early days of his work. Um, so this was so this was initially supposed to be like his senior student film that he was producing in 1972. Uh, the first official cut of this movie was 45 minutes. So Carpenter ended up taking this movie away from USC, supposedly, if I'm reading my, my information correctly. He kind of stuck the middle finger to them, metaphorically speaking. Uh, he had scored a movie a couple years prior that actually got Academy Award nominated and did very well but like the public knows nothing about it that that film being called uh the resurrection of bronco billy uh carpenter was a, a musician or he was the film composer of it and he did a little bit of directing but went uncredited for it uh, i don't know what kind of politics is really behind all of that but carpenter basically takes the film gets it financed gets the rest of the movie financed itself himself because usc maybe wanted to get their hands on it but i guess there was a bit of a riff there so he gets the movie financed i think a year later so he continues shooting the movie and pretty much sets up for a 1974 release i i i guess i'll start with my initial views of the movie um 
it, it's what you probably think it's going to be. It's a super low-budget science fiction film that I think the intentions of making it feel like 2001 A Space Odyssey are there with, you know, artificial intelligence kind of becoming self-aware on the ship and the fact that, like I had said at the end of the movie, they're trying to bomb this planet and the bomb is stuck on the cargo bay waiting to explode, which in return explodes the ship. That was a really scary moment for me. I mean, look, I don't I have no plans to go to space. <laughs> uh, Elon Musk, all those people that want us to leave planet Earth. I don't know, man. Like, I'm just not going to go. Like, I'll just, I'll just stay here. So, like, because the idea of being in space and something like that happening to you scares the shit out of me. And uh, just on this little low-budget movie, and it's not even really intended to be scary. Like, there's nothing really, like a horror film like what he would do in, you know, five, ten years after this, um, that there's nothing that felt like a horror film is what I'm getting at. But like something like that, I was like, oh, that just the way it's done, I just felt the dread of the people on the spaceship. So that to me was like, oh, there's kind of some early workings of Carpenter and how he makes things super tense for its their characters and not knowing how they're gonna make it out of a scary situation. Um, yeah, you're kind of getting what you pay for with Dark Star. It's, it's not the, it's not the greatest movie in the world, but to see a director's early work, I think is always cool. And he's got a, he's got little to no money. I think the final budget clocked in at maybe $60,000. I think he had $6,000. I don't know if I'm getting my numbers right. The book says $6,000. I looked it up. It said it had a budget of $60,000. Um, so vice versa, that's super low budget even for 1974. And that all being said, I think it's a hell of an effort. And I think it's one of those movies that, you know, you show it to someone who can maybe get it distributed. You show it to someone for more money. You show it to, you put it on your reel and you go, hey, this is what I did early on. You know, I know it's not a freaking masterpiece, but it's a lot of fun Um give me more money to make a movie. <laughs> and I feel that was the kind of the case with Dark Star. And it's it's it is comedic. Like it's supposed to be a sci-fi comedy and I think some of the early um movie posters and promotional work do have that sci-fi comedy element to it. It just it's just kind of cool. Like there's I think there's an early poster where there's an astronaut floating around in space and he looks kind of stoned and and it you know it just says Dark Star on it and something else. I think it was the French poster for the french france for the france release of dark star um, but people got to see this movie like i guess it got an international release it floated around didn't do much didn't make a lot of money but again this is this is early this is early carpenter trying to make an impact you know he's in the industry as a young and up-and-coming filmmaker um sci-fi is definitely something uh of the norm for him that we see do in later films, you know, futuristic stuff that isn't necessarily super over the top, you know, big in budget. You know, we get when we get to Escape from New York, you know, there's, you know, elements of that movie that feel like, oh, this is of the future, but, you know, he's working within the confines of a low budget, it still seems. And that's something that's really defined his career. He can do a lot with a little. And some people say that they can do a lot with a little and still it looks like they didn't have a little. And there's just something about what he does with a little but still puts it into a grand scale. And look, the special effects are 
what you get for that kind of money, but there's still something about it where you know oh, they're really working on something cool here, and you, you can't help but get behind it and admire it. Um, I do want to also add a cool little thing when I was watching it on the opening credits. Uh, I'm just trying to see because I know Carpenter works with a lot of the same people throughout his career. On the camera assistant credit for the movie is a guy named Nick Castle. Nick Castle I'm going to mention again in a little bit, but I'll just say it right now. Uh, Nick Castle ended up becoming a filmmaker himself, but him and John Carpenter were close. They were USC film school buddies. And in a couple years after Dark Star, Nick Castle would float around on set of a little movie called Halloween. And I guess he needed a job. John Carpenter needed a guy to play the killer. So in the original Halloween, Nick Castle is the guy walking around as Michael Myers. And, you know, the two of them have been buddies for... To this day, I think Nick Castle has a cameo in one of the new Blumhouse Halloween films... Uh, where he's Michael Myers. I think they let him do a scene in this jumpsuit and uh, mask. Uh, but that was just kind of that was just kind of something cool to see. I know you kind of in film school you create your your team that you work with and your buddies, and it was cool to see it go back even, you know, well not further than that because it was this was initially his senior project. But um, yeah, so that's Dark Star. Uh, I don't know what what more I can say about it. I feel like this is going to be the film that maybe I wasn't going to touch a lot on because I, I do know a little bit about it through the book. I, I, I do know this was coming out while he was in college. I didn't know Carpenter basically kind of didn't graduate or maybe he did. I'm getting some mixed signals on what's what, but you know the movie has very limited locations. You can tell they're made on these little tiny sets that they use, I think, on probably USC campuses on their little sound stages. Um, I think the film probably has a grand total of like five set pieces, and they, they, I think they maybe redress a couple. Uh, there's of course the the very tight control room that they're all sitting in. There's like their bedroom area. There's like the elevator shaft, which is the scene with Dan O'Bannon fighting the uh, beach ball alien. Again, look that shit up. It's hilarious. It's literally a beach ball, and. Yeah, and it's one of those, they have those set pieces where it's just like, if they just, you know that if they just move the camera two inches to the left, it's going to be off the soundstage or you'll see some PA off to the side (laughs) holding something because their shots are just so tight. And, you know, he's always been that director of, you know, what can I put in the frame of the shot and get everything I can in the frame. You know, he's always said, I don't need a cinematographer to tell me where to put the camera. Maybe a cinematographer to tell me how to light the scene. But I've just always respected him for stuff like that. So that's Dark Star. Uh, I believe it's streaming on, interestingly enough, uh, Shout Factory has a streaming service of some sorts. Uh, Shout Factory is a DVD and Blu-ray label. Uh, But they they have this little tiny uh, streaming platform. Um, with different kind of genres and uh, Dark Star streaming on the um, on the sci-fi category. That's where I found it. And I think if you have this cool new thing called Pluto TV, it's pretty much just kind of like cable, but free and on demand. I can't describe it. Like, look it up. <laughs> it popped up on my Roku, so I got it. And you can check um, you can check it out on there too as well. I believe it's th- still streaming on there. So, yeah, go into it knowing that you're seeing a director's first um, outing with very little money 
and I think that'll give you its respect because like honestly like you know plot wise it it can feel like it's a little all over the place but um it's a it's a little student film that got a lot of money for a student film and got out there in the world uh yeah I want to leave it like that I know I sound like I'm knocking Dark Star and I'm not you know just know that going in because Carpenter clearly ups his game, I feel, every film he does, at least, I don't even know till when. You know, I feel like he's always, I think he kind of ups his game for the next 10 years. Maybe he slightly plateaus out a little bit. That's up for debate. We'll get to that probably in part two. But he definitely ups his game from here on for a little while. And I am going to now bring you into the second film here we're going to talk about and that is none other than assault on precinct 13 freeze this is the police drop your weapons and place your hands above your heads on saturday six members of the gang known as street thunder were ambushed by the police on sunday Cholo. the warlords of street thunder swore a blood oath to avenge their dead for the gang called street thunder it is a day of vengeance it's war in the streets. Oh, Jesus, come on. Come on, I'll give you my money. Just don't hurt me, please. Please. It's terror in the night. It's the most shattering assault on a police station in history. Assault on Precinct 13. This is a siege. It's a goddamn siege. somebody comes okay we're in the middle of a city inside a police station i want to say assault on precinct 13 has had a real renaissance over the last 10 years or so on the uh, streaming and dvd um markets uh, i think as I, write, as I record this, I think it still might be streaming over on HBO Max. I'm sure you can find it in a few other spots, uh, Tubi most likely. Uh, there is a you know DVD, Blu-ray floating around out there. There also was a remake, I think in 2005, with uh, Ethan Hawke and Lawrence Fishburne. I'm going to touch on Carpenter remakes soon because um, he, he's had a few of his films remade. There's always talks of some other films that haven't been, been remade to be remade. Um, I think I'll probably touch on that maybe later in this episode or on the next episode if I don't. Uh, but Assault on Precinct 13 got a remake, I think, yeah, like 15 years ago. Um, but I'm going to touch on this one, the original one that was the first film he got to make outside of uh, college when he, after he had graduated or if he didn't graduate. So the plot to Assault on Precinct 13 is this. So the LAPD has killed several members of a South Central Los Angeles gang called Street Thunder, and the remaining members avenge themselves by way of a bloody war against cops and citizens alike. Now caught in the crossfire is someone by the name of Lieutenant Ethan Bishop, played by Austin Stoker, and he's managing a skeleton crew on the night shift at a local soon-to-be-closed police precinct. And the gang members begin to close in on that said precinct. So what happens is Lieutenant Bishop ends up forming an unlikely alliance with a lot of the prisoners there so they can help defend the station and the lives of everyone in it. Cool fucking plot. Literally sounds like a Western movie. Because guess what? 
John Carpenter has said numerous times that this is his version of Rio Bravo. And if you don't know what Rio Bravo is, look it up. I know you cinephiles out there listening know what it is, but Rio Bravo is a classic John Wayne film um, that's pretty much of the same plot. It's a little more, it's not as tense or dramatic or full of action as Assault on Precinct 13 is. Uh, Rio Bravo has kind of the the hangout vibe of a movie that I like to, you know, I like to bring that up every now and then. Is it a hangout vibe? Um, Because, yeah, you're kind of hanging out with these characters for two hours, but then you have this looming plot of um, these bad guys coming to town to help um, bust this guy out of jail. That's real Bravo. Look it up. Watch it. It's a fun Western. It's, It's probably one of the handful of Westerns that I really love. But Carpenter's a big Western fan. And I think that's why he gets those badass characters like Snake Plissken and other kind of cool characters. Because they remind him of, I think, some of the characters he liked growing up watching Westerns. But he's said numerous times, this is uh, my Rio Bravo. So you could watch this a John Wayne film and Assault on Precinct, and it's like a double feature. Because they're kind of the same plot. But anyway, a little bit about Assault on Precinct 13, the original one. So it's 1975, John Carpenter's a little broke, so he links up with Jay Stein Kaplan, whom he had become friends with at USC, and he had, was a production assistant on Dark Star, and they decided to work together, and they wanted to develop a plan to make two micro-budget films back-to-back, and Carpenter proceeded to hammer out a screenplay called The Anderson Alamo, and he did it in about eight days. And Kaplan joined forces with his friend Joseph Kaufman. And they put some funds together to produce these pictures that they had planned. But when they, pre- when they were presented with Carpenter's script, they quickly realized that doing back-to-back films wasn't going to work. So instead, they elected to funnel everything into the Anderson Alamo. Now, when all the money was put together, Carpenter was given approximately $200,000 to make the Anderson Alamo. In addition to writing the script and directing, he would also compose the soundtrack and handle editing duties himself. He made a decision early on that the film would look and sound as slick, as professional as possible. He'd been in love with widescreen photography ever since seeing a film, The Forbidden Planet. He told Kaplan and Kaufman that he wanted to film in Panavision. No doubt one of the knockoff formats like Technoscope would have been a lot more cost-friendly, but Carpenter stuck to his guns. It needed to be Panavision. And if you couldn't tell by everything I just said, I was reading it right out of the book. Uh, Assault on the System, the Nonconformist Cinema of John Carpenter by Troy Howarth, if I'm saying his last name right. But basically, at this phase of John Carpenter's career, he knew he was kind of working in exploitation cinema. So he probably thought, if I'm going to make these exploitation films and whatnot, I definitely, or these low-budget B-movies, I'm definitely going to make them look and sound as good as they possibly can, which i got to commend the guy for. You know, you're going to give me a, you know, we're going to make a crappy idea, a quick little movie? Well, it's going to look damn well good. Got to respect him for sticking to his guns. Uh, the crew of this movie also included a young script girl named Deborah Hill, who obviously anybody who knows Carpenter's career knows the two of them became a huge collaborator, uh, personally and professionally. Now, if you haven't figured out by now, also the Anderson Alamo was the working title for what would become Assault on Precinct 13, um, and it ended up kicking off shooting. They went into production in November of 1975. 
And after the film was done, they shopped it around to various companies. And then they finally struck a deal with Erwin Yablons, who is a name that will come into play in a little bit, also into Carpenter's career. Um, they strike a deal with him. That's where the title got changed from the Anderson Alamo, and I think it was also called The Siege. And they went with Assault on Precinct 13. Now, the film got kind of messy when they took it to the MPAA. Uh, because it actually received an X rating because, well, um, they kill a kid. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh about that. I'm sorry. But they, they, a little girl gets shot down in, um, in the film. A little girl played by none other than Kim Richards, who, if you don't know who that is and you watch reality TV show you, and you watch The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, she's on that. Oddly enough, there's another child actor who was in a John Carpenter movie who was also on that TV show. I'll get into that in a little bit. But she was also in the original Escape to Witch Mountain, and um, I think she was in the sequel, Return to Witch Mountain. But she plays a little blonde girl just getting ice cream, and the gang members pull up alongside of her. And I guess they gun her down. Now, in the cut of the movie I have, I'm that scene still, I think, exists. Like, it's it's in the scene. It's in the movie still, but I think they had to dial it back. And you don't actually see her get shot or killed in a drive-by. I think you hear the gunshots and, like, her dad looks around and then a car pulls off and there she is lying in the ground, dead. Um, Yeah, so they had to dial it back for that scene and whatnot. And but eventually, Assault on Precinct 13 gets released in 1976, I believe, is the release date. And it's gets you know, it, it didn't really hit like how you know, maybe the cult following that it's gotten th- in this day and age, but uh, critically, it did really well. Um, got seen all over the globe and um, really kind of became again like what carpenter always does is he kind of turns it up a notch with every film that he's done and he did that with this one and you know for a lot more people to see it and a lot more money to be made i think it helped propel him forward a little bit so assault on precinct 13 is actually like just a landmark film in his career even though it's his second film known to date um now he did the score for the movie which he did the score for dark star i believe as well and that just kind of became a thing for him he did the score for pretty much every one of his films up until the thing which we'll get into that um we'll get into who did it because it's actually a one of the most well-known appreciated film composers of all time that did the score for the thing but carpenter's synthesizer theme song for assault on precinct 13 is so just so iconic It just has a feel of dread and tension, but yet a nice pace to it that really sets the tone for what you're about to see in this movie. So a few more other things about Assault on Precinct 13. Because of the movie's low budget and whatnot, again, $200,000-ish budget, I should say, um, if you notice, a lot of the criminals in the movie are using silencers uh, because they're outside shooting up this building. You know, they, they can't... There's, there's all these shootouts that happen throughout the movie, and it's done on such a low-budget level. Um, you know, they can't just have all these gunfire going off in the middle of the night in uh, it's somewhere outside of Los Angeles where they were shooting, even though I'm sure they had permits and whatnot. I think they had to dial back on maybe, you know, some of that stuff while they were shooting just so that maybe they didn't get in a lot of trouble and whatnot. I, I don't know how factual that is, but I remember hearing that uh, through a few different uh, 
podcast that talked about assault on precinct 13 the notice uh, note or noticing that um the gang members have silenced machine guns and whatnot uh again it you know, for a movie that is about a siege on a police station, you know, there's no big explosives, there's no um, massive gun fighting. I mean, there, there is. There, I mean, there definitely is a lot of gun fighting, but it's done in a typical Carpenter-esque way of what you're really probably feeling if you're in that situation and how tense it is and, you know, everything just feeling like a ticking clock and you don't know what's around the corner and you don't know, um, you know, if you're going to live through this or not. And I, I feel like in just a little low-budget movie like that, John Carpenter um, really captured that really well. And, you know, just like in that little scene in Dark Star, you know, and he's able to expand on just how he taps into people's senses with creating tense moments. He expands on it in Assault on Precinct 13. And he definitely expands into it on his next film that he did. But before I go into the next film that he did... Um, I want to circle back around to him and Dan O'Bannon. Uh, obviously, they had a falling out after Dark Star. But if I may kind of read from the book that I am referencing throughout this episode, Carpenter's success was not lost on O'Bannon. In his crowded galaxy of resentments, Red Hot Fury at Carpenter was the sun. At film school, O'Bannon didn't just respect him, but there was something emotional as well. He was in awe of his confidence, his ability to charm girls, the ease with which he went through life. O'Bannon was torn when Carpenter invited him to a screening at the theater in Hollywood of Assault on Precinct 13. O'Bannon ended up attending reluctantly. He hated the film and didn't mince words with Carpenter. The damage was beyond irreparable. There was a brief respite around 1979 when they managed to put aside their differences and speak to each other again, but the wounds never healed, but eventually they reached a point where they simply couldn't communicate at all. It was a sad end to a once great friendship, which could have yielded some fascinating collaborative efforts. Quote from O'Bannon, uh, Carpenter's disdain for human beings would be serviced if he could make a film without people in it. Even though he stabbed me in the back, I grew gudgedly, if I can even say that word, <laughs> thought he may be a bad person, but at least he has a lot of talent. How could I fool myself over the years? He ain't Orson Welles, he ain't Howard Hawks, he's somewhere below Wes Craven. Carpenter interpreted things something differently. In an interview with Jordan R. Fox, he commented, The next thing I knew, I had finished Assault, and I invited him to come see it. He hated it so much, and he felt I had somehow done him wrong. So he took this as an opportunity to terminate our friendship. He went through some other experiences leading up to Alien, and during that time, so did I. I suppose you might say we went through growing pains. We wrote letters back and forth. Finally, he said, Look, I've been acting like an asshole. There's no reason why we shouldn't be friends. We started talking again, and now we're on fairly good terms again. I'm Now, that's just part of it. Apparently, I, there's other stories of what the two of them had gone through. Now, I'm just bringing this up because these are two titans of the genre that who knows if they had really kind of been able to click long-term how awesome it would have been to see the stuff that they could have made. He obviously went off to go do Alien. Carpenter, I guess, didn't really care for Alien because I think there's some Hollywood politics involved. He had some sort of involvement with it. I guess the story goes him and Dan O'Bannon were collaborating again and on a sci-fi film. And um, I guess it didn't really pan out. And then, poof, something gets made that is very similar to what uh, the two of them were collaborating on, and that just happened to have been Alien. And 
look, regardless of all that, what I'm getting at is just I, I, it's kind of a weird, complicated journey the two of them had had. And I feel like it's, it, you know, kind of early on in their careers, they could have been something great together. And who knows? But unfortunately, we didn't get that. It sucks. It's also 40 years ago. Um, and they ended up still having good careers since then. So let's now go into what was probably what launched John Carpenter into being John Carpenter. And that is none other than 1978's Halloween. Halloween night. A small American town. Fifteen years ago. Now, what can I say about Halloween that hasn't already been said by me on this show? I mean, I've talked about it a few times. I've mentioned that this really was kind of one of those films I saw as a teenager that, yeah, it was a horror film, you know, kind of lured me into the genre, but also made me study filmmaking um, of some sorts, being that I saw like a documentary on the making of it and kind of made me think, oh, okay, even in a horror film, there's somebody behind the camera with a well-thought-out plan with crafting a movie like this. Hence, my love for John Carpenter films kind of began right there. Uh, But again, like Halloween's been talked about on numerous podcasts, numerous interview TV shows, everywhere. It it became a cultural phenomenon back in 1978 and just kept on going and going and going ever since. I think for a while it was the most um, profitable independent film ever released. I'm sure by now that's changed. I think I had heard that close to like 15, 20 years ago. You know, the, the movie plays on all over you know, every October, anywhere on streaming and on, uh, you know, cable television and whatnot, you can find it, you can find it anywhere, just like you find Christmas movies during Christmas time. Uh, everybody kind of goes back to Halloween in October. But um, to give it a little bit of a backstory, I obviously wanted to go into some behind the scenes things with the crafting of this movie. Um, this film, like Assault on Precinct 13, on paper, Looks like, you know, another 70s exploitation film. John Carpenter, who was working with Deborah Hill on Assault on Precinct 13, the two of them teamed up again to write the script for Halloween for their producer they were working with, Erwin Yablons. Yablons wanted to do a horror movie. He wanted to do a slasher film. He had saw Black Christmas a couple years earlier and wanted to go the angle of, you know, having a horror movie during a holiday. 
and one night would be a best time to do it, and I think Halloween just immediately popped into his head. Um, he had hired Carpenter and Deborah Hill to write the script, and I guess, according to some research I had done, uh, they wrote in about 10 days, 10 days to write a script. Uh, I'm I'm kind of pissed off at that because, like, I mean, I'm sure at this time Carpenter doesn't have a, a family or whatnot. I'm sure he's got a little bit of a fr- little bit of freedom to sit down at his desk and write for ten days straight. But uh, ten friggin' days. I mean, he supposedly wrote Assault on Precinct Thirteen and Eight, but ten days to write a slasher movie. And the premise is real simple. A group of babysitters are stalked by this maniacal killer who escaped, you know, he's an escaped mental patient by the name of Michael Myers. And it's funny, Michael Myers is actually a name that Carpenter had thought of because there was a distributor in the UK who distributed um, Assault on Precinct 13. And his name just happened to be Michael Myers. So he... uh, paid tribute to him by putting his name in the movie and the rest is history but writing this thing in 10 days the original concept and the original title basically is called the babysitter murders immediately sounds like your run-of-the-mill uh exploitation horror film the babysitter murders and i think it just so happens that they switched it out to halloween because they had to take place on halloween and i think Erwinia Blondes had done some research, and there had never really been a movie with Halloween in the title or something, so why not call it Halloween, have it set on Halloween, and the rest is history. So how'd they get the money for this? Uh, they had an investor, Yablons and uh, Joseph Wolf, who was his business partner, had an investor by the name of Mustafa Akkad, who was working on like these big, epic... Uh, <laughs> like epic uh you know period pieces you know i think he was working on a movie with uh, anthony quinn uh the lion of the desert or something the lion of the desert i don't know if i'm getting that title right and you know it's like this big multi-million dollar movie and i guess john carpenter and erwin blondes fly out to meet him i think in london or something have lunch and they're looking to make a movie for about three hundred thousand dollars and here's this guy who's making big big budget things and he goes three hundred thousand dollars i mean you get scared when it's too cheap you get scared when it's too expensive but three hundred thousand dollars must have been a lot of money at the time to a guy like john carpenter who had just made a two hundred thousand dollar film little did we know he ends up investing and halloween is greenlit and now you know it goes without saying um this was really a springboard for Jamie Lee Curtis in her career. She looks back on working on this film fondly. Obviously, they brought her back multiple times throughout the sequels and what's going on now with the Blumhouse kind of trilogy of Halloween that they're doing. Um, she's she's an icon. She's the scream queen. But at the time, she was just a contract player, I think, at Universal. And Deborah Hill had a connection with her. So they brought her on. She read, uh, offered her the part. She took it. And... And, of course, they found out she was the daughter of Janet Lee and Tony Curtis. Janet Lee, obviously, infamously, the she played the woman in the first act of Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, the infamous shower scene. She is, of course, the woman that is killed in the shower. Uh, iconic. Uh, Carpenter ended up working with her a little later down the road. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Um, so they kind of took it as an opportunity to promote the fact that they had this 
actress who was a product of this Hollywood marriage, and she's becoming a part of this, you know, suspense horror genre film. And oddly enough, you know, Carpenter and Deborah Hill were big fans of Alfred Hitchcock. You know, John Carpenter throughout his career has sometimes tried to mimic and, you know, do what Hitchcock would do with his films with creating tension and suspense. Halloween is set to shoot for 20 days, uh, five days a week for four weeks, and um, they need to cast a credible actor for the role of Dr. Loomis, and which is a bit of a nod to Psycho as well. If you are Hitchcock fans, you know about um, the character in uh, Psycho. But yeah, anyway, this is a Carpenter podcast. But um, So Carpenter needed to cast someone with some credibility in that role. So they looked around, and this is 1978. So 1977, Peter Cushing was in Star Wars. He played Darth Vader's kind of right-hand man. The character name is escaping me right now. But um, they turned him down. Christopher Lee, who infamously, uh, obviously later in life, would be in Lord of the Rings. But he, of course, notably was in the Hammer horror films playing Dracula. Uh, just countless, countless movies. Um within genre films and, you know, dramas and whatnot. Uh, great, great actor, great long career, a lot of filmography for Christopher Lee. He turned them down as well. Uh, didn't want to be in their little low-budget horror movie. However, after the fact, according to Deborah Hill, they had linked back up with Christopher Lee down the road, and he said that was one of the biggest regrets of his career, was turning down that part. So they landed on Donald Pleasance. I think it was Ernia Blance who wanted to cast Donald Pleasance. Um, he was he was never really a leading man. Donald Pleasance was always kind of a character actor. He's a Bond villain. Um, he was in, I think, uh, You Only Live Twice as the Bond villain, who obviously his character became the model for Mike Myers playing Dr. Evil, that, that whole kind of gray button-up weird suit and a bald head and a little scar is literally Donald Pleasance and... You Only Live Twice. I think I'm getting that Bond title correctly. Sorry, I'm thinking out loud. Oddly enough, Mike Myers is playing it. Everything kind of comes full circle if you know what I'm getting at here. So Donald accepts the part. And I believe there's a joke that Carpenter would tell that Donald Pleasance accepted the role because his daughter was a big fan of the music he did for Assault on Precinct 13. Uh, Carpenter's time and time again has said, you know, Donald Pleasance liked to challenge him as a young director, but really what he was doing was trying to test him as a director, you know, to see how serious he took the subject matter, to see, you know, how serious he took his job as a director. And the two of them, you know, became, I guess, lifelong friends up until his death back in, I think like 1996 is when, or 97 is when Donald Pleasance passed away. Um, so yeah, they, 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 he liked to say, you know, Donald used to kind of joke with him and make things, you know, have a lot, a lot of questions to really make sure Carpenter was on point as a director, which, you know, to maybe the outside looking in could have been very eccentric or very high maintenance. But I think that's a good thing for an actor to do that to really at times test their director uh, to make sure that they are on the same level. So they shoot this movie in 20 days. I think they can only afford to shoot Pleasant Donald Pleasance and for one week. So they booked all his scenes, I think, within a, a an entire week. Um, it's a small part. It's, it, it, it's actually, in theory, in screen times, a small part. But 
it adds up a lot throughout the movie. Uh, and you know, he kind of, the character of Loomis became a reoccurring character throughout the film series up until his passing, unfortunately. But, um, like I said, there's a little bit of backstory on Halloween. I mean, you know what it's become. It became a cultural phenomenon. You know, there's conventions everywhere where people are dressed up as Michael Myers. The film, I think, hit, uh, select theaters and some festivals during the you know, nineteen seventy late nineteen seventy eight, like fall nineteen seventy eight, and it really kind of wasn't hitting. And I, I think at first, like within a of the first week or so, I think Deborah Hill calls John Carpenter, and it's like, well, it looked like we bombed. But I think the movie basically began to steamroll more and more and more and more and more, and. It's crazy because with something today like social media, things can pick up real quick and you need to check it out and whatnot. And people are talking online. We don't have this at this time. So it becomes a very word of mouth thing. People see it. Some people tell more people. That ripples into other people and everybody's going to go see it. I think that's kind of a cool thing. It's like grassroots marketing and whatnot for a little bit of a little horror film. Um, and the rest is history with Halloween. You know, like I said, you know, you know the story. You know that the uh, mask that Michael Myers has was originally a William Shatner mask that um, Tommy Lee Wallace, the production designer, a uh, close friend and collaborator with John Carpenter, basically uh, painted it white, tore the eyebrows off, goofed up the hair, boom. <laughs> there it is. The rest is history. Yeah, so, you know, that's Halloween. Um, there's my take on it. I could go on about it for another 20 minutes, but I have a lot more films to cover. And this next one is one that, I gotta be honest, was a big gaping hole in my Carpenter filmography knowledge because it's a made-for-TV movie and it's not really like this suspenseful horror film or, you know, crime movie or sci-fi thing that Carpenter would do. And he made a little made-for-television movie with uh, Kurt Russell in 1979, Elvis. sensation who made the girls scream and their men explode. Elvis. The way the world saw him. Come on, Elvis, give us a break. You and uh, Natalie gonna get married? The way he really was. I want to be able to walk around and see things. All the mobs of people, you know, just... just be free. Just be playing little old me instead of the image. Since my baby left me The way you'll always remember him Kurt Russell is Elvis 
You think they care what I think? No way! Shelley Winters is his mother. I don't know if I can get used to all this. These changes. Bing Russell is Vernon Presley. I want you to be happy, son. Pat Hingle is Colonel Parker. You are a phenomenon. You're something, son, that comes along once in a lifetime. Nobody is ever going to forget you. Susan Hubley is Priscilla. Elvis, the motion picture that reveals the whole story of the man whose music moved the world. Elvis, the king lives on. So I'm going to be completely blunt with you all. I don't know a lot about this movie. I've seen it once. I had to track it down. Uh, it's kind of hard to find. Um, I think there's a Blu-ray release. I mean, that's they're actually... How the, yeah, it was. Yeah, there was a Blu-ray release um, or a DVD release, one of the two. That's how I saw it. Uh, but I don't even know how hard it is to find that. I think those. It's got to be out of print by now. Um, it's a made-for-TV movie from 1979. Uh, the script landed on John Carpenter's desk. Uh, I think right after he wrapped shooting on Halloween. So this was, or he was in post-production. It's summer 1978, and um, you know. He wanted to kind of maybe get out of the horror genre, even though he really had only done Halloween that the world had yet to see, but he, I don't think he wanted to be pigeon-held to the genre at the time. That's at least according to the book here I got uh, that I'm looking at. But uh, he actually saw the script and got really excited. It had been passed around through director after director. A lot of people passed on it. Uh, Elvis is a hard kind of biopic to do. I mean, he had only... I believe Elvis had only been uh, deceased for about four years at the time, or maybe three years. I think I think Elvis died in '75. Correct me if I'm wrong, any of you old timers out there. But um, they were looking for the right guy, and they cast, I believe, the right guy at least for the time, a young actor who was a kid actor trying to shed his Disney image, which a lot of Disney stars like to do. Um, no offense to Disney, but hey, it happens. Uh, case in point, people like, what's her name? Miley Cyrus, uh, Selena Gomez, I don't know, anybody else. It happens, and it just so happens back in the 1970s, Kurt Russell was trying to shed his Disney image and take on more adult role, roles. Uh, he clicked with Carpenter. Kurt Russell's a very no-nonsense kind of actor, doesn't bring a lot of ego, uh, puts in a lot of good work ethic to his performance and carpenter reacts well to those kind of uh, those kind of actors so they clicked really well um the movie was going to be put up on abc for airing like i said it was a made for television um made for television uh, movie you know like i said i i don't have too much to really kind of talk about this film i've only seen it once it is kind of that movie that people go oh yeah john carpenter made a made-for-TV Elvis film back in the late 70s. Uh, oh, yeah, you should check it out. I mean, it's it's good. It's fine. Like, I, I get why Elvis is a hard uh, topic to cover. Uh, people can't really get his biography right. I know he's in the zeitgeist right now with a new film out, um, which I heard is really good. I haven't checked it out yet, but that's another story for another episode. But this movie comes out, Kurt Russell kind of isn't, he's known, but he isn't, really kind of what the, the Kurt Russell we got to know through the 1980s 
but you definitely see a lot of early workings of him blending well into Carpenter's world of movie making, and I think that's why they continue to make a few more films together after this. Uh, the film, despite having a really good uh, made-for-TV premiere, it had some stiff competition, I believe. The film premiered on ABC on February 11th, uh, 1979. That was a Sunday night. It was going up against CBS, was running Gone with the Wind that night, and NBC was airing One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest from 1975. Those two were big um, Oscar-winning pictures. I believe they both won Best Picture of their respective years. Uh, so here's this little made-for-TV movie about Elvis with Kurt Russell, directed by John Carpenter, going up against it. And uh, Kurt Russell ended up actually receiving an Emmy nomination for his efforts in the film, which I thought was really cool. I didn't know that. Um, there was a popular response to this movie. So uh, Europe did a theatrical release and retitled it as Elvis the Movie, and they cut it down from 170 to 120 minutes. And it got a UK release in Spain, Italy, France, and I think even Japan uh, through the summer of 1979. And, I mean, that that's, again, that's really it. That's all I have to really say about the Elvis movie. Um, if you can track it down, track it down. Give it a watch. I mean, it's cool to see Kurt Russell early in his career and knowing what, and knowing what he would become, uh, especially in John Carpenter films after the fact. Um, so, yeah, that's Elvis. Track it down. Find it. It's a lot of people's hole in Carpenter's filmography. So about a year later... Uh, February 1980, I get their official release date, February 1st, 1980 in the USA, uh, a Carpenter's Next Film comes out. And it is, I think, look, I know people love Halloween and think it's an icon of, or they think it's, you know, one of the standout horror films of all time, one of the biggest standout horror films of all time, I think is what I'm trying to say. Uh, and that's uh, fine. I completely agree with you. That there's, I just spent 15 minutes talking about it. But for me, lately, maybe over the last like five years, I think because you know Halloween, I can put on his background noise now. Uh, I really have been studying his next film a lot, and that is The Fog. John Carpenter's The Fog. This is K.A.B. Antonio Bay. Stevie Wayne here. And let me be the first to wish Antonio Bay a happy birthday. We're 100 years old today. And keep a watch out for that fog bank heading in from the east. 100 years ago, between midnight and one, something unknown came out of the fog. Now it has returned. Oh, Jesus. 100 years ago, between midnight and one, something unnatural came out of the fog. Now, it has returned. <laughs> 100 years ago, between midnight and one, something evil came out of the fog. Now, it has returned. Who's there? Now. 
so from the first few minutes of the fog, you know you're in for something really special and something that's going to just really set your nerves off and really scare you and make things just there's gonna be so much ten- tension going on you just you just know the, the, that opening scene where it's this you know old man sitting at a campfire with some kids and he tells them the story which is basically what is the plot of the fog and the plot of the fog is strange things begin to occur as a tiny california coastal town prepares to commemorate its i think it's like their 100th or 200th anniversary of being a, a town um we start to see uh, objects spring early to life. I think the the opening first five ten minutes are so cool because you start to see uh, like gas station pumps just like on their own squirting out gas and whatnot, and lights turning on and off. Things just being thrown all over like a grocery store. Um, so yeah, there's some weird things going on in the town, and um, then all of a sudden a mysterious fog. Uh, begins to come up the coast of this little town and more people start to die a lot of, a lot of characters start to get killed off and we learn uh, that there are these ghosts of an old ship a pirate ship i believe are back to haunt the town for something horrible that has happened to them so it is a fun ghost story movie. This is one of those horror movies that are just, I feel, are also really fun. And I think Carpenter does that really well when he does horror, at least in this phase of his career. They're, they're fun. Halloween, in theory, is a nice piece of low-budget cinema, but it's also a popcorn movie. You go to it with friends. You know, you yell at the screen, don't go in there, Yeah, you know, all that stuff. The Fog is kind of that, too. This is just a fun horror movie. But it feels a little darker than Halloween. There's something more spooky about it. It is the perfect film. It's so atmospheric, too. I'll get into how it's a perfect film in a minute. But it's so atmospheric how uh, just the mood and the tone and the the town. I love movies or stories or anything that take place at a coastal town, whether it be on the East Coast or the West Coast. This takes place at a coastal California town, like I just said. I think it's like Northern California. It's an actual, I mean, the town, I think the title of the town is made up. But um, you can actually go there. I, I Last time I was in California, I looked up how far of a drive, because I knew I was a few hours distance from where Antonio Bay, which is where the fog it supposedly takes place, Um and like I was like four hours out of my way, so I, like I couldn't go to it, but or maybe like three hours. I don't know. California's big, but it's it's just there's such a great mood and environment that Carpenter really captures in this town, and it's just so perfect. That's one thing Carpenter really does well. He creates atmosphere so well in his movies. He did it in Halloween, which I think is what upped the ante of the movie a little bit, rather just being babysitters getting murdered. He just created so many tense atmospheres and he really ups his game yet again like what i've been saying so far for the past hour he takes it to another level in the fog i know people put things like halloween ahead of the fog but you know i'm preaching to the choir now Uh, the fog to me i think is the better movie between the two and this also began a thing for carpenter where he started working with like ensemble casts I mean, he had, you know, Assault on Precinct 13 has a lot of characters, but it's also a pretty low-budget movie, and a lot of the actors were not these huge names at the time. 
uh, the fog really kind of marks a point in his career where he brings on movies with he he does films where he brings on a lot of characters and this is also a tight movie i think it's i think it clocks in at like 89 minutes and when you're down to those final 10 minutes i just remember thinking how the hell is this movie going to end with all these characters and really not a lot of people not a lot of these main characters die spoiler alert until well let's just say the very end and even then like I'm not going to say who dies and who doesn't if you haven't seen The Fog, but there isn't too much bloodshed, but uh, there still is a few kind of oof moments where you see somebody, you know, get axed by the ghosts from the ship uh, that come when The Fog arrives. So going on the topic of ensemble casts, uh, let's just take a look at who's in this movie. This first off, first off The Fog reunites Carpenter with Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh, this was their second outing. I think um, maybe this was their final outing. They only did two movies together. Stayed, you know, stayed in touch throughout the the years. Obviously, um, with how much Jamie Lee Curtis, you know, loved doing Halloween. But this, I think, was the second and final outing. After that, she started doing a lot more comedic roles and whatnot, and never really shed the scream queen image she had. But you know, she was on to other things after doing the fog. Um, but oddly enough, like I said, her being the daughter of the famous Janet Lee, Carpenter cast Janet Lee in the film as well. And, uh, they don't play mother and daughter. They actually, I don't even know if they really have a scene together till the final few minutes of the film. Uh, Adriana Barbeau, who at the time was married to John Carpenter. I think they had married a year prior or in that case, maybe before they started shooting a year before the fog came out. Um, she has probably one of the coolest characters in a horror movie ever. She's, you know, a late night radio show host and the radio station is playing out of a lighthouse in um, Antonio Bay where the, the, the fictional town. And so she's like the first one to kind of see the fog rolling in. And she has very, very pivotal, cool character. I, I've always kind of few about a month ago when I had filmmaker Matt Sullivan on and he did a short film about, you know, something that happens at a late late night at a radio station. I think we referenced her character in the fog. Uh it's just such a cool it's just such a cool little character. Um Nancy Keys, who I believe um she's got a smallish part in it, uh, but she was also in Halloween as uh Annie, who's the first victim ever uh or teenager first teenager victim ever of michael myers um i think in real life she was married to tommy lee wallace who you know production designer on halloween ended up filming directing halloween 3 and uh tommy lee wallace i believe has a i think he plays one of the um ghosts under heavy makeup i'm not i'm not entirely sure don't hold me to that but um uh two really big I should say three, actually, excuse me, three characters. Uh, Charles Cyphers, who plays uh, Sheriff Brackett in Halloween, comes back for a role in the film. Uh, uh, Tom Atkins, a icon of 80s genre cinema, is in it. And he oddly plays a character, I don't know if I'm correct about this, plays a character named Nick Castle, and everything comes full circle again. Nick Castle, of course, a friend of John Carpenter, who played the role of the shape, Michael Myers, in the first Halloween and one of the cool casting decisions that I wish like he was in more Carpenter films. I mean, he's in a lot of movies. Hal Holbrook plays Father Malone. 
someone who really knows the mythology and the lore of what's going on in the town with this fog. Uh, great role, great performance by Hal Holbrook. Great actor. We lost him, I think, a few years ago. Uh, but it's just so, he's, he's great in this movie. Um, yes, that's the cast of The Fog. Uh, some stuff I picked up learning about The Fog. Um, so once again, Carpenter wanted to use Christopher Lee for the movie, who Christopher Lee turned down Halloween uh, to play the Loomis role. He offered the role, or at least wanted to get him for the Father Malone character, which ended up going to Hal Holbrook. Uh, I'm not really sure if he turned it down. I don't think he turned it down. I think he was just, there was a scheduling conflict. They couldn't get him. So um, they ended up going with Hal Holbrook. So that's kind of cool that he went back to him again. Uh, so this movie, like I was talking about, has so much atmosphere to it. Uh, the, 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 the shooting at night is so brilliant to me. This is the perfect movie to watch with the lights off because it kind of illuminates the tv illuminates in you know the room i'd love to see it on the big screen i've never seen it on the big screen but the way night looks in this movie is amazing for a 1980 film i mean you in the in the early late 70s early 80s you really kind of night has a weird look to it i just think you know maybe they didn't have you know cameras or the gear that we have now obviously that can really illuminate night like a red cam these days can can do but something about the night in the f- this film is uh just beautiful it's a perfect film to watch in the dark uh i emphasize again on atmosphere you know it's i'm just coming to pulling out of my uh my bibliography book here uh carpenter wanted to make a different sort of picture from halloween he wanted to make a film that was soaking in atmosphere suspense would again be key and overall effect Uh, was to be one of dread as a mysterious, deliberately ill-defined menace gradually encroached upon the narrative. Once again, Carpenter collaborated with Hill in writing the script, and the canvas was larger and more ambitious because they had a $1 million budget that Avco Embassy, which was the company backing it, that was willing to spend. Also, another cool thing I noticed with the characters is they all are kind of three different character arcs or three different arcs throughout the movie that kind of culminate within the climax that takes place in a church when the uh, uh, ghosts or the thing is, is they're supposed to be ghosts, but they look more like zombies or I don't know, maybe they're supposed to be like the undead kind of thing. Um, I kind of go back and forth with that. I didn't get any concrete uh, evidence on really what they are, but the characters in the movie all kind of have these arcs and it all culminates in that church i'm repeating myself sorry but tom adkins and jamie lee curtis are kind of a pair jamie lee curtis is this hitchhiker tom adkins picks up and they kind of end up shacking up for a little bit and uh that's a bit of a character arc that we kind of followed them you have uh janet lee's character and um nancy loomis who i believe by this time goes by nancy keys apologies uh I think she was since divorced from her previous husband uh, by the by the time they made this movie. But uh, Janet Lee and Nancy Keys, uh, they are kind of the people behind the uh, centennial uh, party that's trying to go on in the town that is being disrupted by these strange occurrences going on. Uh, so they have a bit of a character arc as well. Uh, Adriana Barbo's radio station host character, she is quite a character arc as well and has this really tense scene where the fog and 
is taking over her house that's a coastal home she lives on the water and she can see it from the lighthouse where she's working and her kids in there and it's just like one of the most crazy scenes like ever i i just you don't know how the people are going to get out of it and that it's again just a key thing in the movie uh and also father malone's character is a big character arc as well as things kind of culminate with him and has probably one of the craziest last shots in the movie. I love how this film ends. And oddly enough, the kind of main villain of the film, the leader of this undead group of pirates, or whatever they are, under heavy makeup, and you never see him, you never know it was him, but it's Rob Bottin, a special effects makeup artist, who in a couple years would make some of the most landmark effects in on-screen horror for Carpenter uh, in The Thing. So we'll touch on that in a little bit. But I got to stop, make a pit stop at something before we get to The Thing, because uh, that's The Fog. Uh, I don't know what more I can say about it. I think it's currently streaming on Shudder right now. Actually, as I record this, a lot of Carpenter films just dropped on Shudder. I know I talk a lot about Shudder. I'm not sponsored by Shudder or anything, but I just checked today and, like, uh, I think The Thing just dropped up on there. Halloween has been on there, I think, since I had the streaming service. And a couple other ones I'm going to talk about in a little bit. And one of them I'm going to talk about right now. And that is his next film to come after The Fog, where he doesn't do a horror film. He switches things up a little bit here. About a year and a half after The Fog was released, on July 10th, 1981, we have our next John Carpenter film. And that is none other than the sci-fi action i don't even know if you call it sci-fi it just takes place in the future but the year it takes place and we've already been long past it uh this is none other than the classic classic escape from new york new york 
just a badass and he's really the ultimate rebel badass and that's how carpenter writes him this also is a reunion for carpenter and nick castle because uh, i believe they co-wrote this movie together i think it was in the pool of like two or three films that which one was going to be the next one for carpenter to direct and they ended up going with this one uh, again up the budget even a little more the fog was a million dollars uh, this was a $7 million budget, biggest budgets, again, so far up to, uh, biggest budget so far for John Carpenter to do. Now, for anybody who does not know the plot, here it is. Uh, it takes place in the future, uh, which the future is 1997, uh, a solid 25 years ago as I sit here and record this to you guys. Uh, but obviously the film came out in 1981, so 1997 was a solid uh, date for the future. Uh, I don't know, I remember 97 being a good year, so it's nothing like what happens in this movie. <laughs> but uh, there's a major war between the United States and the Soviet Union that has concluded, and the entire island of Manhattan has been converted into a giant maximum security prison. Um, Air Force One, with the president, is hijacked, and it crashes into the island. The president, who is played by Donald Pleasance, John Carpenter reuniting with Donald Pleasance for the first time since Halloween, uh, he plays the president, and he's taken hostage by a group of inmates on Manhattan. So the United States government, uh, the powers that be, decide to find the ultimate badass motherfucker to go into Manhattan and try and rescue the president. And that is none other than Snake Plissken, uh, who's a former special forces soldier turned criminal. And... If he completes this task, I believe he has 24 hours. He's got some sort of a, I can't remember right now, uh, ankle bracelet or wrist bracelet or something that's basically a bomb. And he, I think he has 24 hours to, or 48 hours, one of the two, to get the rescue the president, get him off the island, get him to safety, or... Uh, the bracelet is basically a ticking time bomb and he explodes and dies so no real loss for the united states government the military that's recruiting this guy if they don't get the president you know they just lose another criminal basically in return he gets to walk free uh very cool premise very cool setup uh very cool special effects mind you a lot of really awesome miniatures of manhattan uh obviously the 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 Twin Towers were still standing. This is clearly pre-9-11. Um, so, like, to kind of see, like, uh, Manhattan shot from afar, knowing it's a miniature, but still, like, the special effects feel so honky-tonk. They feel so... There's something that I can compare it to. And one of the things that I can compare a lot of these cool, you know, physical man-made special effects on sets... Uh, to is a couple years later, uh, The Terminator. Now, oddly enough, I say that three years, this is 1981, so this is three years before The Terminator ever comes out. It just so happens to be James Cameron, who went on to direct The Terminator, was working as a member of the production team. I think he worked in the special effects department. And, like, he wasn't in charge of anything. Like, he had nothing. He wasn't the overall visionary of the um, miniatures and all the cool special effects in the film. But he worked in the department, so I always thought that was kind of cool. I felt like there was this weird parallel between what we see in the Terminator with those flashback scenes to what the future looks like 
and something like Escape from New York. Like honestly, I you know in a weird way, like they could go. I mean, some people would disagree with me, and I, and I can understand that. But like, I think Escape from New York and the Terminator go as like a cool double feature of this, you know, dystopian, not too far out future that we could potentially have. Uh, so that was cool to know that James Cameron worked on it before he really started to hit it big as a director. Other cast members of this film include none other than Lee Van Cleef, the uh, none other than iconic uh, spaghetti western star. This guy's been in everything from, you know, for a few dollars more, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, uh, Death Rides a Horse, Day of Anger. Uh, he is the fucking man. And he actually, he plays the... Um, military guy by the name of hawk he's kind of like in charge of snake plissken and uh, i found out i guess he had like a busted leg or something but agreed to do the movie still and they were gonna recast and he was like no no no, no i'll do it i'll do it so if you watch the film in pretty much every scene he's in he's either sitting down or he's or he's standing but you don't see him move that much so I, that's just a little fun fact I learned uh, doing some research on the film. Other cast members include uh, Adriana Barbo returning in the film as well. Ernest Borgnine is in it. He plays one of the cabbies that drives around uh, Snake Plissken. Like I said, Donald Pleasance plays the President of the United States. Isaac Hayes, uh, chef from South Park. <laughs> and uh, But when he was a, you know actor in the late 70s, early 80s, he plays pretty much the main villain in the movie called The Duke. Uh, Harry Dean Stanton is also in there. He is Harry Dean Stanton's just one of the best actors out of uh, kind of that era of what you know, 60s, 70s, and 80s. He's a great character actor. Um, just so many other cool people. Uh, Deborah Hill, um, his Carpenter's producing and writing partner, uh, has cameos. Just like a computer voice. They always did stuff like that. I think in like Halloween. When one of the boyfriends calls the girls, uh, I think it's actually John Carpenter on the phone. They'd always give themselves these weird little, you know, cameos and whatnot. But, you know, obviously it goes all the way to the top with a guy like Kurt Russell in the lead. Uh, so many great little one-liners. Um, you know, I don't give a fuck about your war or your president or something like that. Uh, just great overall character. But yeah, like other cool things about it, obviously the film is called Escape from New York. Uh, they barely shot in New York. I think they picked up some, uh, they shot some exteriors here and there for the film after the like big bulk of the production had already taken place. They went out to, you know, Ellis Island and whatnot and got some, you know, shots of the Statue of Liberty, some things with Kurt Russell as well. But primarily, I found out the film was shot in St. Louis, Missouri. A lot of the scenes um, at night when he's, you know, running around Manhattan, supposedly exteriors, anybody's ever been in New York is watching that and going, well, that is clearly not Manhattan. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, you know, with New York being an asylum for criminals in this movie, like, yeah, it's, it's obviously going to look ran down and, you know, look like crap and not look like Times Square and whatnot. But, um I mean, clearly you can just tell it's not New York City uh, going back and looking at it. But know, if, you, if you're not really thinking about that, you'll miss it. But um, just a couple little notes I have about the film here. And this is maybe not necessarily, uh, I don't want to say it's not factual, but it's just kind of my reaction to it, watching it 
later in life. And, you know, Carpenter likes to throw in, he doesn't necessarily say like, you know, John Carpenter doesn't necessarily like to sit down and interview and go like, oh, it's my reaction to, you know, this that was going on in the world or something. And I was channeling it into a little, you know, dystopian sci-fi action film. Like he, he's just going to sit here and say like, whatever's on the screen is how you interpret it. But from time to time, I, I think there's a couple films out there he's done and we'll talk about another one in a little bit. Uh, he'll inject his, you know, views on things or his take on something in the world and new york city for anybody who knows in the 1970s throughout the 80s was not a great place to live uh especially if you were very poor if you were living in dirt poor neighborhoods and whatnot oh my god it's it was just you just seeing some of the footage and photos of growing up in one of the boroughs of the city in that era it, it looks i don't even know what to compare it to because <laughs> i don't know uh it, it looks like it's not even america in some places i mean new york is very different now anybody who's ever been in new york will tell you that's not the new york you grew up in or they grew up in but to me like what was the new york you grew up in um I feel like this just may have been a little bit of Carpenter's kind of reaction to New York City. I mean, he's not from New York. I believe he's from Kentucky, but has pretty much spent the rest of his life in California. Uh, but New York City just had this notorious um, vibe around it for being just full of criminals, full of crime. And so they, I feel like they just kind of took that concept and made it into this sci-fi action film. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know if, again, if that's factual, but that was just kind of my, one of my reactions to it when I watched it recently. I'm like, maybe he's just given a commentary on how much of a dump New York City is right now. Uh, but anyways, Escape from New York, uh, like I said, The Fog is kind of maybe my go-to Carpenter horror film. I know it's kind of one, it's one and the same with Halloween, but I like when Carpenter does stuff like this. I feel like this was a step above something like Assault on Precinct 13. Take a very big, big concept, but kind of hit it at a very low level. Like This movie could have flying cars, cool futuristic things in it, and it doesn't. It feels like a, it feels kind of like a Western, which, again, Carpenter likes to go towards. Um, it doesn't have you know, big things, it has big ideas, but, you know, kind of keeps it at a lower level and keeps you on edge and keeps you in suspense, which John Carpenter loves to do. You can still feel his elements of horror that go on throughout this film. Um, a lot of fun. It's always streaming every now and then. Uh, catch it if you can or get a Blu-ray copy of it. It's just one of the most fun, iconic movies. I think the first time I ever got it shown to me, I think I was like 10 years old, I remember my mom just pitching the idea to me about like, oh, there's this movie Escape from New York because the sequel had just come out. And I remember watching it and not really thinking it was that good, but it definitely just grew, has grown on me over the years. Um, yeah, that's all I got for you on Escape from New York. <laughs> um, so let's move on now. Let's move on to the film that I feel every horror fan probably puts in their top 10. 
And as someone who talks a lot of horror films on this show from time to time, I would have to say I'll probably put it in my top 10 as well. I don't know exactly where, but it is definitely in my top 10 of favorite horror films. That is 1982's The Thing. 100,000 years ago, it found its way into our galaxy. wasteland of Antarctica. It could not escape. Now the men of Station 4 have made a monumental discovery. An alien creature had frozen, but not to death. Just celebrated its 40th anniversary uh, a few weeks ago. And um, I, I want to say this film, over the last... I'm sure someone who's older than me is going to disagree with me. But uh, over the last 10 years, just so many people want to talk about the thing. Uh, it's one of... It's, it's maybe... A lot of people argue it as Carpenter's best film. Uh, but oddly enough, the movie was a box office bomb when it came out. I'll get into that in just a minute. I feel like I jump ahead sometimes here. Uh, if you don't know what the thing is, here's the quick synopsis. In remote Antarctica, a group of American scientists are disturbed at their base camp by a helicopter shooting at a sled dog. When they take in the dog, it brutally attacks both human beings and canines in the camp, and they discover that the beast can assume the shape of its victims. A resourceful helicopter pilot, Kurt Russell, and the camp doctor lead the camp crew in a desperate, gory battle against the vicious creature before it picks them all off one by one. Good God, this movie has hands down some of the best special effects, gore effects in a movie bar not like i don't know what tops it i i to this day don't know what tops it and it's crazy to me because john carpenter when he makes horror films does not make he doesn't do a lot of gore i think later in his career maybe you see him pull some you know gore here and there but it's never like over the top um this is just he goes for it here and i think he probably needed some convincing on it i, I remember reading an interview with him that i guess he had talked to stephen king and Stephen King, I think, told him, you know, yeah, don't show the monster. Don't show too much of the monster. Build up to it and then make it quick and scare the shit out of your audience. But if you can find a way to show your monster and have them absolutely enthralled with these grotesque images, uh, go for it. And he does go for it. There is so many effects that are built into my head that now look i i know there's um with the plot if you don't know you know it starts with a dog that gets uh 
onto this base and the dog is infected by an alien life force uh spoiler alert look if you've never seen the thing i mean if you have seen the thing you know what happens like these dogs get fucked up and i'm i'm a, I'm a dog lover I, I love my personal dog these are the only this is the only time in a movie i can watch a dog like something bad happen to a dog and not take my eyes off the screen i can't believe i'm even saying that like because it's it you, you can't you cannot not look at this it's it's so fucking crazy how they make this work and this is um the the special effects supervisor on this is none other than rob botine who worked on the fog with carpenter who played one of the uh the the, the undead ghost pirates that's walking around uh <laughs> um, he him and carpenter together creating these effects is just nuts i, I would have been loved to have been a fly on the wall in pre-production listening to them saying like oh we can get some guy's head cut off and then these like legs come poking out of the head and they prop up the head and now it's like a a walking spider alien head with a human head like unreal and then of course the um the defibrillator scene where they're where they're trying to you know bring someone back to life and then as they put the things on the stomach to shock them like the stomach just opens up it's fucking insane i i i love the thing i love it it's beautiful uh i shouldn't i mean yeah fuck it yeah it's beautiful the gore in it is fucking beautiful it's so much fun to watch it they really go there and they really hit it out of the park and i really want to say in the last 10 years so many people love talking about the thing and so many people have just like given it this renaissance because when the film came out it was a box office bomb now you're probably wondering why was this iconic piece of horror cinema such a box office bomb well the reason being uh the thing hits theaters june 25th 1982 two weeks earlier uh, i think it was june 10th or yeah june 10th at least that's what Google's telling me. June 10th, 1982, E.T., the extraterrestrial, hits theaters and becomes a cultural phenomenon. And a lot of people like to think the reason why The Thing was such a box office bomb is because, you know, Spielberg makes E.T., uh, this very heartwarming, family-friendly movie about an alien and the bond it shares with this little boy. And, you know, E.T., you know, goes off and gets a bunch of knockoffs every, you know, you know, over the years. Uh, what was it? Mac and me or something. I don't know. But um, two weeks later, the thing comes out and, you know, E.T. still killing it at the box office. I'm sure it is. It's Spielberg, for Christ's sakes. But nobody really wants to go see a movie about an alien, like, s- destroying and killing these guys in an isolated you know play in an isolated camp in antarctica nobody wants to see that so the thing bombs at the box office and it's not till about you know maybe years later with vhs and dvd and whatnot the thing kind of starts to uh create this like you know renaissance of oh this really actually is a good movie it just didn't do well when it first came out and i always love that with films when they when they're awful at the theaters but people go no 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 wait 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 that is actually a really good movie it's just maybe the timing of it being released is was not that good i, I always kind of appreciate that with cinema there's so many movies out there that 
I've revisited that. Eh, I thought we're kind of whatever when they came out. And I'm going, no, 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 no. This thing hit. They just did not find the right time to drop it. Now, I should mention The Thing 1982 is a remake of the classic sci-fi B-movie The Thing from Another World, which is produced by Howard Hawks. Oddly enough, in Halloween, uh, when they're watching television and they're at, you know, all everybody's in their home watching some scary movies on the television, I think The Thing from Another World is actually playing on the TV, which is kind of cool. And uh, so this is produced by Howard Hawks. Uh, it was a movie based on the novella Who Goes There about a team of scientists who uh, become sieged in an, an Antarctic research station with a shape-shifting alien that can imitate people. So I, I've looked it up. I've watched it. You know, it is what it is. It's a, it's, a, it's a B movie from the 1950s, something that Carpenter probably grew up on. And when he got his chance to maybe go, eh, I could, I could up the, the playing field with it a little bit. Uh, and he did, and yeah, he damn well did. Um, about, I want to say, close to 30 years later, I think it was 2011, The Thing got a prequel release. Uh, a lot of people hated it. A lot of people didn't like it. I went back, I, I did not see it when it came out. I went back and I watched it, and uh, not that bad. I don't think it was that bad. Uh, I didn't, you know, I'm not going to, I didn't love it, but eh, I don't know, you know, whatever. But that, that's another thing, and I'm going to touch on this right now because I think we're a little bit away from the films that Carpenter made that there's always been talk about remakes. The Fog got a remake, which I did not think was very good. Halloween, obviously, has got multiple sequels um, that Carpenter just kind of shows up to get his paycheck. <laughs> and uh, there's a funny story Carpenter likes to say is, you know, it doesn't matter how I feel about all the Halloween sequels. All I know is that when I read the trades and learn they're making another Halloween movie, I go to the meeting, I sit through it, and then I put my hand out, and they put a check for million, a few million dollars in it, and then I go on my way. <laughs> so that's one thing I've always noticed with John Carpenter. They try to remake his movies but they don't do it with that Carpenter style and that aesthetic. They, again, like I was talking about earlier, did a remake of Assault on Precinct 13 with Ethan Hawke, Lawrence Fishburne, two great actors. It didn't have that low-budget quality and great storytelling and how he moves the camera very well that John Carpenter can do. And so that's just kind of why I think when they want to remake a Carp John Carpenter film, it just doesn't hit for me i'd never really jump at it but the thing prequel was kind of cool i'll give you that so like i said the thing was a box office bomb uh despite its cult following that it has now i don't even i wouldn't even know if i'd call it cult following it just you know i think it's just a massive following now um so now i think carpenter hits a real kind of wall in his career although he continued making movies um obviously i still have a few more movies to talk about uh his kind of string of getting a little bit of creative i shouldn't say a little bit i should say a lot of creative freedom with anything from assault on precinct 13 down to the thing and that's like a solid it's like six years and he almost made him i think he made a movie from from halloween on to the thing was like a movie a year because it was halloween the elvis film the Fog, Escape, and then The Thing. And in the following year, he makes another film. 
and it's an adaptation of a Stephen King classic called Christine. Sonny, you ever owned a car before? No. I just got my license. Start her up. Her name's Christine. I like that. I saw you guys at the football game. Ah, did you ever get that car fixed up like that? Oh, it's plain old-fashioned hard work. Ever since he bought that car, he's been obsessed with it. And you know what else? They told us the man who owned that car last died in it. What do you know about that car? I know that the guy who owned the car before, Arnie, his daughter choked to death in Christine. It's that car. I swear it's the car. That's Christine coming. Oh, Cherry. That's funny, you know, because I, I heard you was totally... Well, after I cleaned up the broken glass, it wasn't so bad. So what if you... You fix it up, you know, and he just comes back and does it again? He won't do it again. So this is 1983, and Stephen King adaptations have been going on for close to 10 years, and it was bound for Carpenter and King to kind of collide and have a film made uh, that's an adaptation of King's work, Carpenter really being kind of one of the forefront genre directors, and Stephen King being, well, Stephen King. Uh, Oddly enough... Uh, like I said, the thing, um, the thing was a box office bomb. So, you know, Carpenter didn't really get put in director's jail, but I think as you notice with probably his next couple films, there's a little more restraints put on him. Uh, Christine definitely still feels like a John Carpenter film. John Carpenter did the score of the movie. And I think when John Carpenter does the score of the films of his films, uh, it, it really does kind of set the tone um, the only time Carpenter didn't do a score was Ennio Morricone did the thing, and but still, like it, it, that collaboration, I think worked really well. Uh, so Carpenter does the score for Christine, and honestly, this I, I rock out to the score from this movie. I talked about it on the uh, film scores episode I did with uh, my buddy Carrie Vishwanathan. Uh, the theme from Christine is like one of my favorite movie themes of all time. It's good to work out to. It has like a strong guitar riff, has a very kind of up-tempo rock and roll, but foreboding kind of synthesizer vibe you hear really coming out in the early 80s and really coming out in Carpenter's work. Uh, But there's also some things about this movie that feel like there's a little more involvement from outside forces i mean this is an adaptation i'm sure stephen king at this point in his career 
is has some notes. And I'm always kind of curious to think how uh, Stephen King and Carpenter really could kind of collaborate on this, even though it's not necessarily collaboration. Like, you know, it's just another book that's getting optioned into a movie. And it just so happens John Carpenter's directing it. I, I think one of the funny stories I've always heard about when Stephen King uh, got his book adapted for The Shining and Stanley Kubrick was directing, the two of them had barely any any dialogue together. They, they barely talked. I think the story goes, Kubrick called King like at midnight one night and Stephen King ended up being awake and asked him like a quick question about something on page whatever number. And King gave him an answer of what he kind of meant and was trying to convey in the book. And Kubrick just went, okay, thank you very much, and hung up. And that was it. They never really talked about it ever since. Uh, and anybody obviously knows Stephen King is not the biggest fan of Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of The Shining. But that's another side story. Uh, I also think Stephen King films or Stephen King books are, I think there's just only a few select directors out there that have really nailed what King tries to do. And Carpenter only did one. He only did Christine. Um, and I feel like it's perfectly up his alley. Uh, it, it sounds like it could be a John Carpenter movie, which I feel like is why Carpenter kind of lands with this film to do. I mean, like other directors like Rob Reiner, I don't think it's Rob Reiner. I don't think it's a lot of credit for how he adapted Stephen King films. Um, Mick Garris, I know, a famous collaborator with Stephen King on a lot of those 90s made-for-TV uh, movies for the for ABC. He, he did a few of um, he did he did a few King collaborations, and they're still very close to this day. I feel like he was able to nail Stephen King quite well, um, and a few other contemporary directors as well. I think are really fit into that mold of being able to bring his work to life. So back to Christine. Let's talk about the Stephen King adaptation directed by John Carpenter. So let's start with plot. The plot of this is pretty much about a killer car. A killer car for anybody who doesn't know what Christine is. Uh, to expand on that a little bit, it's about an unpopular nerd named Arnie, played by Keith Gordon, who play, who is, oh my God, so good in this movie. Uh, he buys a 1958 Plymouth Fury, which is which he names it Christine, uh, and he develops a very unhealthy obsession with the car, and um, you know Arnie's kind of a bullied character, and he pretty much, with him having this car, takes on a very just toxic personality, and he uses the car to his advantage to. Um, harm people with it when he finds out the car is kind of will take orders from him there's a famous scene where christine the car is smashed up into pieces and arnie's very much on to the fact that he can control what this car does and this car is actually like some sort of being or entity that's possessed and the car basically becomes unsmashed and comes back to life it's a fucking awesome scene sounds kind of weird saying it here in no microphone but it is such an awesome scene um so yeah, this I always felt like this movie had a little more involvement uh, from higher-ups looking down on Carpenter trying to make this movie because he had just had a box office bomb, which was his first. They scaled back the budget a little bit. The thing, I think, was it's his biggest budget known today. I don't have the number in front of me, but they did dial this 
back to a $9.7 million budget to make Christine. He didn't get to work with a lot of his same people as well. Dean Cudney, his um, cinematographer, longtime collaborator, was off making something else, so he had to work with a different cinematographer. But I still think uh, I still think some of the feel of a Carpenter film comes across and how he wants the camera to be moved, but you can definitely tell someone is sitting behind the camera, moving, making those movements, movements, and it's not Dean Cudney, his longtime collaborator. Um, also, different cast, you know, uh, Keith Gordon in there as um, first time, I think, working with Carpenter. Harry Dean Stanton, who was in Escape from New York, comes up in there as well. Uh, other cast members... Uh, the great John Stockwell, Alexandra Paul, Kelly Preston, the late great Kelly Preston, uh, John Travolta's wife. Unfortunately, she passed away a few years ago. Uh, she's in there. A lot of a lot of character actors. Uh, Robert Prosky, I think I'm saying that right. If you don't know who he is, just look him up. You'll recognize him from a lot of movies from the 80s and 90s. Um, yeah, like th- this this movie also I think really captured high school culture in the 80s. In more of a serious manner, when it's kind of like poke f- poked fun of, you you know what I mean? Like in '80s films, you know, the bully bullying someone—it's almost like they're trying to make it comical in some way. And in this day and age, I don't think that really that comes off kind of corny. Like anybody who's ever been bullied knows it's a very negative, difficult situation. And um, I feel like this is one of the few movies in the 1980s where there is a a nerd being picked on. And uh, it's just, it's very like, eh, it just sucks, you know? It just sucks. Like, being bullied sucks. And the crazy thing about it is that uh, Keith Gordon's character, Arnie, the first, um, the first like act of the movie, you know, you really kind of feel for him. He is just kind of a loser. You, you kind of want to see him, you know, get get something in the world, get something out of life. And instead, he becomes a real big shitbag once he has this car and like you you really you go from really kind of feeling bad for him to really being like eh, this guy's a douchebag and i i had not really seen that in a movie of that era it's always the nerd who overcomes you know adversity and here it is the nerd overcoming adversity but in return it makes him kind of a piece of shit um as for some other cool little tidbits behind the scenes another thing i didn't know is that when this landed on Carpenter's lap to potentially direct uh, this movie, the the book, uh, the actual book Stephen King was writing wasn't even out yet. I think it was in the works to be released in about a year. I think this was like around 1981. You hear that this, you know, Stephen King has a book coming out about a killer car. And I believe there was some sort of collaboration on Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, which Carpenter's involved in. He was involved in Halloween 2 and Halloween 3, I'm sure I should mention. He did not direct, but he wrote and produced and, you know, contributed some music to it. Um, He was still trying to do something with Halloween 3. That's for, you know, a different podcast. You can look into researching. I'm just talking about his directorial efforts. But, um... I guess someone involved with Halloween 3 had mentioned that this book was kind of starting to make the rounds to potentially be adapted and thought it was a good idea to put someone's name like John Carpenter and Stephen King on the poster and then boom, but the mo- but the book had never been released yet. So it was still a little bit of a waiting period and Carpenter again almost lost the job, I believe, because of the thing failing 
and this book not even being out yet. So why would you have this director who just had a box office bomb and not knowing if this book could do well adapting? Uh, so that's that's all I got to say about Christine. It's currently streaming on Netflix right now. Like right now. You could literally stop listening to this podcast and put Christine on. Uh, fun, suspenseful scares. Uh, gets a little, not gory, but I think there's a little more bloodshed than you're used to seeing in a Carpenter film. Um, but it's one of my favorite Stephen King adaptations and the book in and of itself, uh, scared the crap out of me when I read it. Uh, you think I'm, I, I just love saying to people like, you think a movie about a killer car isn't going to be scary. And Christine, I think with King's storytelling and Carpenter's way of using the camera with his, you know, up-tempo synthesizer music just really sets an amazing tone for the film. Okay, now moving on to a, another film. Uh, we're getting to the end here. Just thought I'd let you know. <laughs> I've been talking by myself for an hour and 40-ish, 45, 50 minutes. This is a movie that has had a gaping hole in my filmography. I did not. I had always heard of it over the past few years and didn't even know Carpenter directed it for a while. And it turns out... I'd never seen it, and I'd always been trying to hunt it down. I think I rented it at the library for free a couple years ago, and it was when it was going through a time where I was spending a lot of time at the library, so I'd take out like 10 books that I would barely finish reading and 10 DVDs, and I would get through like two or three of them. Uh, I rented Starman and didn't get to watch it. In 1977, Voyager 2 was launched into space to the outermost regions of the universe. It carried an invitation in all languages for alien life forms to visit our planet. Someone, somewhere, listened and accepted our invitation. Get ready. Someone is coming. Someone like no one she has ever known before. Can you clone a living organism from the hair of a dead man? We're hypothesizing a technology that's probably 100,000 years ahead of me. He has powers we cannot imagine, and the face and touch of the man she loved. I said greetings. What's the matter with you? How much English do you understand? I understand greetings in 54 planetary languages. Seriously, expect me to tell. Present, an alien has landed, assumed the identity of a dead house painter, and is presently out tooling around the countryside in a hopped up 1977 Mustang. You're not from around here, are you? Think of what it would mean to talk to a being from a civilization like that. Think of what we could learn. You don't understand. There isn't much time, please. He doesn't want to hurt anybody. Can't you just leave him alone? What the hell ever happened to good manners? We invited him here. So far to come. So much to do. So little time to fall in love. Look up. Company's coming. John Carpenter's Starman. Starman is... Carpenter's next film, released in 1984, and this is something a little different, I must say. So, Starman, let's talk about it. 
Now, this, I think why a lot of people, base level fans of his work, forget that he directed this movie is... Because I know I've said, like, Christine feels a little different, but it, it still has that Carpenter touch. Um, something like Elvis feels a little different. Um, but Starman, to me, sticks out, because this is in the middle of his filmography. And you'd think, you know, maybe he'd... And I have to just kind of respect him, because he tries something different here. And I think he's evolving as a filmmaker. And I think he's got guys, other directors out there right now. Spielberg and uh, I don't know who else. John Landis. Uh, any, any, a lot of these kind of directors that are at their core genre filmmakers. And they're getting a shit ton of money to go make these big movies. And I think maybe Carpenter wanted to do something like that. I don't know if that's for facts. I've never interviewed the guy. But like... I'm just looking at other films that are coming out at the time and kind of these very intimate films at their core but have this big, vast scale to them. And Starman has that because it's a road movie. It's about two people kind of going on the run and here's the plot. <laughs> Starman is about an alien that answers a message that is sent out by NASA in space and the being tries to contact mankind but an American missile grounds his ship. Um scrambling the so-called star man played by jeff bridges may i add and abbots the body of a late wisconsinite and kidnaps the dead man's widow uh, her name is jenny played by the great karen allen who some of you might know from raiders of the lost ark determined to reunite with a vessel from his home planet on a predetermined site Starman and jenny travel from wisconsin to arizona pursued by military officials trying to kill him Starman forges a lasting bond with jenny I love movies like this. I love movies where it's like, at its core, kind of a love story. I, I shouldn't say kind of, it really is a love story. But there's like a cool little sci-fi chase film element to it. And you know, maybe the ending is going to bring a bit of a somber tragedy. But before you get there, it's a fun adventure. And I just, I can't believe someone like John Carpenter would direct this if you look at his previous filmography. I mean, he doesn't make, he doesn't seem like a nihilist. He doesn't make these like dark films. They're fun to watch, but this is a really touching movie. <laughs> and it's really the only film in his filmography that has that tone to it. Um, I think Karen Allen's performance is splendid. Jeff Bridges playing an alien is a little jarring at first. Uh, I won't lie. Uh, the first few scenes where he's talking and acting like an alien, uh, I don't know how I feel about the acting, but once the movie gets going, you kind of get past it and you know, you kind of, okay, you know, this, he's, he's supposed to be acting like this. He's a alien that has taken shape of a, a dead guy. Basically. I don't, you know, I'm sure it would be a little weird, <laughs> But uh, Karen Allen's performance, I, I, I shouldn't say Jeff Bridges' performance is really good. It just say it, it kind of catches you off guard at first. Uh, Karen Allen's performance is beautiful. You know, playing this widowed woman who pretty much sees in physical form her husband come back to life, but it's an alien inside of him. So she has this internal struggle of this alien is going to leave her, but it's it looks like her husband. And... Uh, does she or doesn't she fall in love with him or should we say it or I don't know what the pronoun would be here. Uh, does she or does she not fall in love again? 
being that she thinks she's seeing her husband, knowing that it really isn't him. Uh, some cool facts about the movie. There's a very interesting scene at the very beginning of the movie. The movie starts right out of the gate with uh, Starman, as we'll call him, crash lands um, near where Karen Allen's character is uh, living. Karen Allen's like up all night watching old home movies of her husband. So you're able to kind of connect the dots out of the gate, what's going to probably potentially happen. And, you know, she's getting drunk and everything. And um, through whatever powers that be, I'm not going to dive too far into it, just go see the movie, but uh, Starman basically uh, becomes you know, her, her husband, but literally we see him take over his livelihood from like birth to wit, just about when he died and what he looked like when he died, if I'm making any goddamn sense. Uh, so we see like this little baby pop up, like in her living room floor. And it basically evolves and evolves and evolves into a grown adult into Jeff Bridges, basically. Um, fun little fact about that little baby and that special effect that happens with it growing like 30 years within two minutes uh a few titans of the uh special effects department kind of collaborated to create that effect and that was stan winston rick baker and dick smith they all joined forces for the uh starman being born sequence which i thought was kind of a cool thing i learned about uh another cool fact uh i guess when they were prepping to do this movie a they were looking around for someone to play Starman, and i guess for a while a little up and coming i mean he was pretty much kind of a superstar by then this is 1983 when they're probably shooting it. it's a 1984 release uh tom cruise was in the running to play Starman, but i guess they thought maybe he was a little too young i'm not really seeing why he didn't end up taking on the role but uh anywho some other cool things about the film, uh, actor Michael Douglas produced it. Uh, some, some of us don't really know, but Michael Douglas actually got his start in the industry as a film producer. Uh, it wasn't until probably around the 1980s when he started jumping in front of the screen and we saw him in, you know, erotic thrillers like uh, Basic Instinct and uh, what's that other one? Fatal Attraction that would come out a few years after Starman. But yeah, he was a producer. Him and Carpenter worked really, really well. Um, and he wanted to make a sci-fi film because sci-fi was very in over the over the past few years, pretty much since things like E.T. had popped up on the radar. Um, you know, a couple of things about in Carpenter's personal life, him and Adrienne Barbeau, uh, she became pregnant, uh, but their marriage was a little problematic. And just kind of in hindsight of this knowing that personal side of things um in hindsight just kind of the flow of this movie it does kind of feel like maybe carpenter's fleshing out some personal woes and anxieties he has maybe in his life uh, i know this is very much a love story and it's sounding like his marriage was kind of starting to come apart uh i don't know maybe he's still working out some longing feelings uh it's just another idea that went through my head i don't know what's factual and what's not i'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings by saying that uh but he also wanted to try something else outside of dark and thrillers and you know suspense and whatnot and starman actually is kind of what he had been doing but with a positive effect something like the thing obviously is about an alien taking over a body and but 
pretty awful things happen in the thing. But in Starman, an, an alien takes over a body and becomes a almost metaphor for a woman who's trying to put an end to her grief of her husband passing away. And it just so happens, let's just say, spoiler alert, uh, she gets pregnant, um, impregnated with an alien. <laughs> um, I, just kind of saying that might maybe draw people away or freak people out, but it's done in a very loving, sympathetic way. I mean, the, the two obviously are bound to kind of hook up, and it happens. And we find out she's pregnant at the end of the movie. And I think maybe that's Carpenter. And he didn't write the script, but I feel like Carpenter's maybe brings some of his personal things to the plate of his impending fatherhood that's you know gonna happen soon and i think we're seeing a little bit on screen and you know there's very i think at this time in his life there's very uh special things going on very very kind of big moments in anyone's personal life going on and i think we see him inject that into his professional life while he's making this film and, um, you know, you see that a lot with directors, even if they didn't write the script. I mean, everybody likes to say Temple of Doom is Spielberg's divorce movie. He was going through a lot of stuff. So that's why that movie's just a little more dark and a little more maybe even violent. He's just kind of fleshing out his his issues on screen. Uh, you know, this there's a lot of maybe melancholy and up and down things going on in Carpenter's life. And even though, again, he didn't write the script for this film, but... Uh, he wanted to prove he could do something different, and I feel like he did. I feel like he accomplished something a little more sentimental and something a little more bittersweet. Uh, so that's Starman. Um, I think it's streaming in a few places, like Tubi and whatnot. Yeah, or you can just, I don't know, go to a library and see if you find it on DVD like I did. Uh, cool. So let's move on now. Final three of the episode. I've been talking for two hours. Uh, it's time to jump into a film everybody loves. Everybody who grew up in the 80s loves a lot <laughs> and uh i uh i did i caught on to this late and i definitely love it and i know they i've heard rumors of trying to remake it with the rock nothing against the rock but i don't think it's going to add up to what the 1986 release of big trouble in little china was this is jack burton in the pork chop express and i'm talking to whoever's listening out there it's a pretty amazing planet we live on here and a man would have to be some kind of fool to think we're all alone in this universe. There is a hidden world where ancient evil weaves a modern mystery. What's going on here? Is this some kind of... Magic. The darkest magic. They call it Little China. Finally, we shall bring order out of chaos. where big trouble was waiting for Jack Burton. Who? Jack Burton. Me. Jack. Jack. Jack! They told him to go to hell. He make one move. And that's just where he's going. Somebody, I don't care who, tell me what is going on. Now, this was, I believe, Carpenter's only studio-financed film up until this point in his career. 
uh, 20th Century Fox was forking the bill to have him come on and make this movie that uh, went through a lot of rewrites throughout the 80s. Uh, I think this, this was just pretty much just a, you know, cowboy comes to town and fights Chinese ghosts, and it had a very Western appeal. So when it landed on Carpenter's desk, I guess he was just like, I have to do this. You know, like we've like I've been saying for a few hours now, John Carpenter loves his Western films. And, you know, adding in the element of these crazy car chases through the streets of San Francisco, um, he loved it. And he felt like uh, he felt like it also was a nice callback to the, uh, you know, the crazy kung fu fantasy films that he had fallen in love with back in the early 70s. Uh, he had seen things like Five Fingers of Death, which was the first martial arts movie that made it to our shores at that time. Um, yeah, so he, this was just like a genre-blending film for him that I think he really wanted to do. And it was really kind of hitting at the right time. The studio really wanted to just make another Indiana Jones-type movie. So I think, again, Carpenter was jumping at things like that at this point in his career. This script was floating around at the same time that a another script was floating around that was, I believe, backed by Paramount Pictures called The Golden Child, or it ended up being called The Golden Child. I think at the time the script was called The Rose of Tibet, and it was an Eddie Murphy vehicle that ended up getting made. I mean, I, I think if anybody knows great 80s films, they know about The Golden Child. It's, it's such a fun... It's honestly like it's a solid double feature with Big Trouble in Little China. It, they're almost one and the same these kind of supernatural movies about an american getting tied in with some crazy asian culture about i don't know i don't even know but like they really are a solid double feature and it turns out carpenter was actually approached to direct that as well and i guess with these two films there was just like a lot of controversy surrounding them between paramount and fox there was a lot of people coming on board and then quitting and then trying to and then joining the other project just to try to stick it to the other studio there was like a lot of ruthless corporate movie making business going on between fox and paramount with these two projects this film also was a big of a, a bit of a reunion with some of his old collaborators he was able to team back up with Dean Cudney, uh, the cinematographer that he had worked on on many other projects that he had missed out on working with on, I think, things like Christine and Starman. Uh, camera operator Raymond Stella, second unit director Tommy Lee Wallace was back on this. Uh, and production designer John J. Lloyd, uh, who had worked uh, miracles on The Thing, I believe. Um, yeah, so this was kind of like Carpenter getting back together with his team on a studio-backed project. Now, once again, for any of you who don't know what Big Trouble in Little China is, let me tell you the plot. Try and follow along. <laughs> so Kurt Russell plays this hard-boiled truck driver by the name of Jack Burton. Iconic character. Cool name. Kick-ass name. And he gets caught in a bizarre conflict within an underneath San Francisco Chinatown. An ancient Chinese prince and Chinatown's crime lord has kidnapped a beautiful green-eyed woman who is the fiancé of Jack's best friend. Jack must help his friend rescue the girl before the evil Lopan or Lopan, I forget how it goes, uses her to break the ancient curse that keeps him a fleshless and immortal spirit. Hope you were able to follow along with that plot, because it gets a little wonky, and it is, and it's a, it's a fun movie that kind of has some over-the-top things, and of course, like I just said, Kurt Russell's in this. This, again, was the third outing of Carpenter. Actually, correct me if I'm wrong. This was the fourth outing of Carpenter and Kurt Russell working together since 1979 with Elvis, Escape from New York, The Thing, and now this one, Big Trouble in Little China. Um, 
according to what I'm reading, a lot of just making this movie was fun on set stuff. You know, Carpenter and Kurt Russell apparently forged a stronger bond than any of the stars he'd ever really work with from after the fact. Filming commenced on October 7th, 1985, uh, but it would prove to be a mixed experience because on the downside, there was some controversy generated by the subject matter among certain Chinese American social groups. Uh, supposedly, what I'm reading, um, all the Asian actors that were involved with Big Trouble in Little China seem to all like the script and agree with all the subject matter that was going on. Uh, but apparently, outsiders looking in on the project, activist groups, were very much opposed to how uh, Asian American, Chinese American um, characters were being portrayed. Uh, I, like, I'm not going to go into that. I, I don't. I don't really know. I'm not going to try and choose sides on this. I love the film and the fact that you know all parties that were involved seem to enjoy their time. I think that says a lot. But I, you know, there's always going to be controversy around things like this. Um, and I, again, I, I don't know what I can really contribute to that. I wasn't even born yet. But um, uh, the movie, when it came out, was a bit of a, a box office bomb. It, it apparently didn't do well. But like the thing uh the F carpenter and kurt russell film seemed to have caught caught a cult following that's a tough thing to say caught a cult following over the years with this movie um when people think of fun 80s out there movies i think big trouble in little china just gets lumped in so well uh yeah there are also some great physical effects that happen throughout this movie. Great makeup effects uh, throughout the film. I think this is like a new crew of uh, makeup effects team that Carpenter's working with on this movie, which I thought was kind of cool. I, I, I like how he kind of switches it up. Like he has his people he can go to for different projects. I mean, great collaborations can last a long time, but sometimes they run out of steam. And I think it's good that he switches it up every couple movies. Uh, one of the uh, special effects uh, people, Steve Johnson, who was pretty much in charge of the elaborate effect where the character of Thunder explodes. If you don't know what I'm talking about, maybe I'll leave a link in the show notes. Um, the film also features a young Kim Cattrall who went on to Sex and the City fame about, I don't know, like 15 years later. Uh, she was a she had done a few things throughout the 80s. I believe she was in Porky's in a memorable small role i'm not gonna talk about on this show right now um but yeah she's you know she's in this she shows up as well yeah th this is just an all-around uh, great great uh cult film and it really has achieved its cult status uh, over the last 10 years uh financially it again was not a success uh, i think it pulled came in at number 71 for the 1986 box office season which I guess it's kind of cool. I mean, it's pretty, you know, low at the lower end, but uh, it only pulled in about $11 million at the box office, which is way short of the film's $18 million budget, and it kind of added salt to the wound because The Golden Child was released as planned in December and ended up coming the number eight earning around, earning around $80 million in betting terms. It looked as though Carpenter had picked the wrong horse, which sucks. Now, that's a quote from the book, by the way. But, um, yeah, it sucks because he may have gone and directed The Golden Child, and who knows what could have happened, vice versa, going back to the issues with the studios kind of taking jabs at each other's, you know. What if Carpenter went and directed The Golden Child and it didn't become the financial success and Big Trouble in Little China became this big phenomenon or big, big 
you know, big movie of the era. But um, would the roles be reversed a little bit with there's the each movie's successes? Who will know? But Big Trouble in Little China definitely has achieved its cult status, like I said, over the past few years. I know I'm repeating myself. Let's get down to the second to last movie here of this retrospect this very very long retrospect oh my god i've been talking for a long time but i love john carpenter movies and this one without a doubt i think is one of his most intelligent films in his entire catalog he has a lot of very simple stories and yes this is a simple premise off the bat but i think what goes into the hour and 40 some odd minutes of this film is some really interesting information that could be you know things we still argue about today and that is none other than 1987's prince of darkness anyone in close proximity has the same dream what is it a secret that can no longer be kept it started a month ago what started a change in the earth sky is power there's a weird locking mechanism looks like it can only be open from the inside a life form is growing out of prebiotic fluid it's not winding down into disorder it's self-organizing it's becoming something what So this, to me, marks a back-to-back in movies where Carpenter's really explaining some big ideas, I feel, or fleshing out some views of the world that he has. Uh, He's coming off of Big Trouble in Little China, which was financially a disaster, even though it has become the cult phenomenon that it is today. And again, once again in his career, he's kind of at a crossroads again, it feels like. He doesn't know what kind of film he would want to make next. And I feel like sometimes when directors do, do when directors are in this position, when they're coming off a financial bomb of a movie, the best bet is maybe to make something on a small scale, but with a big message, which he has notoriously done well for his entire career up until this point, I should say. Uh, Prince of Darkness is what I feel just that a really big idea and concept, but done primarily in one location, uh, the entire film, all hour and 40 some odd minutes. It pretty much takes place within a church in somewhere. I think they shot it somewhere down in Los Angeles. Uh, So the quick plot synopsis of Prince of Darkness is just this. It is about a priest played by Donald Pleasance, Carpenter reuniting with Donald Pleasance for the first time since Escape from New York, I believe. Uh, He plays a priest that uh, is pretty much poking around an old church cellar. I don't know if the church is closing or it's ran down and they're trying to reopen it. It's been a while since I've seen the film, but um, he's poking around uh, the cellar of the church and he finds this vial 
that is not of this world. It's, it's very otherworldly. Wor- oh my God, I can't say that word. Uh, but it, it just, it, he brings um, the discovery to a circle of top scholars and scientists. And the scientists eventually learn that the strange liquid is the essence of Satan. And so pretty much what they do is the scholars and the students and whatnot, they kind of take over the church and decide to look into this and study this. And what happens is the slime begins to sleep, seep, the slime begins to seep out and it turns some of these people into zombified killers. And then it turns into the possessed battling the survivors. Uh, one of the students gets infected by a large quantity of this liquid and pretty much becomes Satan personified and it's wild it's 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 the 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 third act of this movie gets so fucking wild i feel uh i remember seeing this film when i was super young not even knowing that carpenter had directed it i was not really aware of him as a director that much at the time and i didn't really get it and i didn't really see it in its entirety but I, i didn't get it it just felt like a weird little horror film um by the time i think i saw it again a about 10 years lay after the fact i think i saw it again about 10 years after the fact and it's there that i was like oh this actually is a pretty fucking good movie if you ask me uh yeah like you know satan running around in a church uh possessing people uh it's a possess- it's a possession film um and then i saw it again about a couple months ago i think Uh, maybe more i think i saw it back in october of last year i was watching it during my horror movie binge pretty much and i thought oh this is just exploring some really big ideas and i don't know if this is talked about that much but i always kind of felt like this film is exploring the parallels or the argument of science versus religion and is this pretty much taking the idea of now these two ideas or these you know a priest and a scientist basically having to work together to discover if there is actually a devil in the world and i think that's such a big idea and that's like one of the biggest concepts i think carpenter really tackles in his films and it's done here really really well uh, the third act of the movie i think I, I think i fell asleep one time watching it and i woke up really in the final 20 minutes when all these characters are getting possessed by this green ooze and uh (laughs) basically um they look fucking terrifying like the makeup effects on these people i don't know creep me out like i woke up you know again in the final few minutes i'd watched it earlier but i forgot what happened in the final act of the movie and I, I was terrified of what these people look like. Just something about the makeup effects kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Uh, it, it's it's a it's a fun movie. You got to be kind of patient with it. It does have a little bit of a stretched out first act. It does kind of feel a little too much in the beginning, um, but once it gets to where it's going, it really lands well. And uh, just just some other facts about the movie here. Well, this isn't actually a fact about the movie, but because he was at such a crossroads in his career, Carpenter only Carpenter almost ended up working with Charles Band. If anybody knows, if you don't know who Charles Band is, he was on the show back in November. Uh, one of the most iconic B movie producers of all time, uh, created Full Moon Features, and him and Carpenter have always been buddies. And he almost teamed up with them 
to make some films for Empire Pictures because he wasn't getting offers. I guess you could say he was kind of blacklisted as a director. You know, the studio, working with the studio didn't really pan out. I mean, you could see a guy like John Carpenter not really doing well in the studio system. He's such an individual. But he ended up almost, I guess, locking some deals down to work with Charles Band's then Empire Pictures, um, kind of making some high-scale B-movies. But it ended up not working out. I guess he you know, didn't want to dive too far into that realm. Uh, that would have been kind of crazy to see uh, Charles Band and John Carpenter as collaborators. I thought that that, that would be kind of cool. Uh, anybody who's seen the film knows that uh, rock star Alice Cooper makes a small but pretty memorable appearance as one of the homeless people that's uh, living outside the church that gets becomes under the influence of the devil. Thought that was a cool casting choice. I think you know he's only got like a few minutes of screen time, but on one of the DVD Blu-ray copies out there, he is I think on the cover of it, which is kind of cool. Uh, Victor Wong, who plays the scientist in the film, and Donald Pleasance, who plays the priest in the film, uh, he, I guess Carpenter had wrote the parts both specifically for them, wanting to use them because he had had such success with working with them earlier in his career. Well, Victor Wong was in, uh, I believe he was in Big Trouble in Little China, so that was just the previous film. But I think the two of them make an actually great duo of uh, two people with kind of an opposite belief system when it comes to something like the devil and how they view it, but they still kind of come together to overcome the problem of the movie. And, you know, there's been a lot of critics out there that have, I believe, said that uh, Prince of Darkness gets off to an intriguing start, but the movie loses its way. I'm no critic. I'm, I'm no, I don't work for no magazine or any, I don't have a I don't have a blog anywhere besides this damn podcast, but I I have to disagree. I think the movie might get off on a tightly slow start for me, just for my pacing, but I think the payoff and the impending doom of what's going to happen to this these characters I think is brilliant. I think this is an underrated movie in his catalog. Uh, people kind of put Prince of Darkness at the back end, and this was, I guess you could say, kind of the beginning of the end for his run that he's had since maybe you could argue Assault on Precinct 13 or Halloween. But um, it does end on a high note. Now, again, I, I like Carpenter when he went into the 90s and made a couple few out-of-the-ordinary films that I wasn't expecting something like him to do. But um, a lot of people say Prince of Darkness was the end of his run. But the 80s kind of ended with a bang for him. Again, another cult film that achieved... Another another film that achieved cult status uh, probably years after the fact. And his next film is none other than They Live. What do these things want? Why are they here? You still don't get it, do you? They have recruited the rich and the powerful. They're running the whole show. Wake up! They're all about you! All around they are safe as long as they are not discovered. I don't know what they are or where they came from, but we gotta stop them. Stay away from me. Put these on. They have us. Look at them. They're everywhere. We have no other choice. I don't like this one. Leave it alone, man. It ain't none of my business. Ain't none of yours. We have been lulled into a trance. What I'm saying to you, we're in trouble. The whole world's in trouble. 
control of it. You send it some kind of secrets on the TV sets. I've got one that can see. Mama don't like Tattletail. Now we start spilling some blood. Let's go. But I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick all out of bubblegum. Now, let me kick off my chatter about They Live with the plot line of it, because I think it's kind of cool. A Wanderer, played by none other than professional wrestler Roddy Piper. Uh, He's without meaning in his life, and he discovers a pair of sunglasses capable of showing the world the way it truly is. As he walks the street of Los Angeles, he notices that both the media and the government are compromised of subliminal messages meant to keep the population subdued, and the most of the social elite are skull-faced aliens bent on world domination. With this shocking discovery, he fights to free humanity from the mind-controlling aliens. Released on November 4th, 1988, this is again another movie that found its audience maybe after the fact, but Carpenter was really having a commentary on the Ronald Reagan era. I mean, he doesn't seem like quite the right-wing kind of guy. He doesn't seem too far left-leaning either, but, I mean, I could be wrong about that. I don't, I don't know 100% the guy's politics. Maybe I shouldn't say that, but um, he definitely is trying to talk about um, the Reagan era and, you know, rich yuppies and whatnot and... Uh, there's, there's just, there's, you know, the the attacks on poor people throughout the 1980s and from the get go, that's what this movie's about. Uh, Roddy Piper's character, Roddy Piper's character is homeless who strolls into, uh, Los Angeles and ends up living in kind of like a homeless community that all kind of supports one another. And he's homeless, but he has a job. He works construction and, um, He's just trying to make money, trying to, you know, get ahead in the world and pretty much just having to start from scratch. And uh, he discovers something, obviously, with a pair of sunglasses. And it's one of the coolest things ever. And this is, again, John Carpenter taking a big subject matter and kind of dialing it down a notch, but still getting a compelling message across uh, some absolute iconic scenes in the film uh the long stretched out fight scene between him and keith gordon roddy piper and keith gordon in the alleyway that goes on for like i think like 10 minutes of the movie and the movie's only an hour and a half and if you add that up like it's like what the fuck they took 10 minutes out of this movie just to watch these guys fight Uh, it's been spoofed on south park before it's um it's it's a pretty fun scene to watch uh, another thing another famous line out of the movie is when he goes into the bank full of uh full of yuppies full of you know the skull-headed aliens that are actually in there and says one of the most badass lines of all time in any movie uh, has a hell of a third act that culminates where i think maybe you know a little more of the budget kind of goes into the third act i can feel but a fun little fact I learned about They Live is kind of the origins of it. And I'll pull from the book I've been uh, 
pretty much referencing this whole episode. Carpenter took his inspiration from a short story by Ray Nelson titled Eight O'Clock in the Morning, published in November of 1963 in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. It tells of a man, George Nada, who becomes aware of an insidious plot by aliens to take control of mankind. Like everybody else, he's been in a state of hypnosis, completely unaware of what is happening around him. But one day he wakes up. And then he starts to notice the subliminal advertising encouraging people to obey and reproduce and basically follow the status quo as a way of serving the aliens in charge. When he realizes what is happening, he attempts to rebel. When the aliens become aware of his newfound awareness, they tell him that his heart will give out the following morning at 8 o'clock precisely. He figures out that the aliens are maintaining control via a television signal, so he goes to the station to destroy the device which is sending out the signal. He is successful, but his victory is short-lived. He dies of a heart attack at 8 in the morning. And, um, yeah, there you go. There's They Live. <laughs> it, it's such a... I, I think the um, I think the, the clothing brand, I think it's called Obey, uh, uses They Live all over their product, so I'm sure Carpenter, whenever uh, get, I'm sure Carpenter gets like some sort of royalty check off this, off of that clothing brand. Uh, it's really the ultimate. Um, are we being controlled? Is everything not what it exactly is? Kind of film, and you know we see stuff like that come around like once in a decade, and I feel like They Live was perfect for the 1980s. It's perfect for this day and age, honestly, if you ask me. And it's it's a it's it's one of his, you know. I'm splitting this this kind of uh, this show into two parts, and I feel like this is kind of a good place to end it because his career goes down a different trajectory from They Live, and some people think he falls off in the '90s. Some people think he doesn't. I argue that there's actually some good stuff in the 1990s. We'll get that into the next episode, but. I feel like They Live was a good stamp on the first half of his career and kind of said who he was as a filmmaker. Um, I can do things with a not-so-big budget and still have a great message, and you might not like it at the time, but you're going to probably like it in a few years after the fact. Uh, It is that kind of movie. Uh, And Roddy Piper in it is... Who would have thought a professional wrestler can really bring it in in a little John Carpenter film? Um... So, yeah. And there we go. There we have it. I'm going to end it right there because I have been talking for holy shit a long ass time. Uh, So that's part one of my Carpenter retrospect. Wanted to do an episode like this for a while. Uh, It sucks that I'm doing it by myself, but if I wasn't doing it by myself, this would have probably been a five-hour episode. Um, So, yeah, I hope you enjoy it. I hope you tune in next week for part two where we're going to go over things like In the Mouth of Madness or Memoirs of an, of an Invisible Man. I don't know if you all remember that, but that Chevy Chase comedy, drama, sci-fi, whatever the fuck that was, was directed by John Carpenter. I didn't even know that till maybe like 10 years ago. I watched that movie a lot when I was a kid. I can't wait to get into that with all of you. But a lot of what made John Carpenter John Carpenter is what we went over today for the last two and a half hours. And I feel like what we're going to go over next week is maybe what John Carpenter was able to do now that he got a lot of his big titles out of the way. And maybe he had a little more creative freedom, and maybe it's not for everybody, but I think it was for him. Or I don't know, I could be wrong. Maybe he just like fucking didn't want to direct anymore, so he was just like, 
fuck it, I want to do this. But regardless, uh, thank you all for listening. Hope you tune in. Be sure to track down any of his movies that I talked about today or any of the movies I'm going to talk about next week. And uh, don't forget to leave a rating and a review in the wherever you do it, wherever you listen to this podcast. And uh, we'll see you all next week. Take care.